Hello, and welcome back to MetaStation for our recap of episode 405, The Tinderbox. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. This is uh, this is a this is the first episode of the season that we both sort of felt maybe less super excited about. Um, we really loved the first four. This one we felt like we had some, I guess, things that we sort of didn't like as much. So we're going to kind of talk through that first. We're still very optimistic for where the rest of the season is going. For me, this episode really felt like it had shades of season three this is one of the things that i that i didn't like about season three it felt like there was a huge amount of stuff going on crammed into a pretty tight timeline and the sort of i think inevitable side effect of that is things don't really have any room to breathe so we had a ton of really complicated challenging emotionally significant kind of plot points that were introduced in the first four episodes many of which in the in this episode were sort of totally wiped off the table so like the whole clark making the list and everyone finding out about the list is now moot because arcadia has burned down and we never really got to see bellamy and kane living with their conviction that Octavia was dead and it was their responsibility we saw them like react to the news and then like the very next moment we really saw them they were realizing that it wasn't true there was sort of a you know big lead up to is Ice Nation and Arcadia gonna go to war that ended up so it's it felt like there was there was a lot of things in in the last couple episodes that were introduced as being things that were going to be of enormously high ongoing stakes that were all wiped off the table in one go in this episode so I guess my biggest question, this is where this is where I feel like I I didn't love it, but I'm willing to be sort of turned around based on, on like where things go next, is if those things are sort of invalidated as plot points, but they continue to have ongoing character stakes, then I'm okay with it. If the point of yeah. the list is to um that it's sort of a decisive flip in Clark's relationship with Bellamy, but it also sort of permanently transforms the way the rest of the group sees her and leads them at some key moment that the crowd chooses Jaha over her, then the list served its purpose even though it doesn't actually have anything to do with where anyone ends up like living when the radiation comes. Could it could all turn out that there's a there's a long game where there's sort of ongoing character development or relationship stakes for all of these things and that you know that they continue to have resonance in the story the the worst case scenario and i think this is why sort of on first watch i was kind of like uh what was fearing are they all going to end up like abby's hospital you know where you have like we're really deeply invested in something it seems to have really high stakes a lot of characters are involved in it it seems like it's really going to move the plot forward and then one day it's just sort of gone and never referred to again like initially when I watched it, I was sort of like, okay, we're just sort of dropping loose ends left and right. And then when I watched it again, I kept thinking, okay, I think I don't have enough information right now by the end of this episode to be able to really assess whether those things are problems or not. So I'm willing to be turned around. I'm willing to be hopeful. But on first rewatch, it just sort of felt like, you know, it felt like this episode kind of undid a lot of the stuff that they had been really building in the first four episodes, which I really enjoyed. So that was a little, so I felt, I felt a little bit kind of shortchanged by that, but I feel, I felt differently the second time around. I'm more really optimistic. What, where were, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I was basically the same. The first time through, I really did not 
enjoy it. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I, that's actually, I shouldn't say that. I think, like, when it, by the end of the episode, I felt like I was very, like, oh, that didn't really work for me, you know. Um, I think I, I think the first half I really enjoyed, but it was just kind of, like, the way a bunch of stuff landed, it didn't work. And the second time, like you, I was, like, I you know, it, was, it worked a little bit better. But I think it was a similar kind of thing where, you know, the, I think the first time through – the fact that Octavia's sort of fake out death basically seemed to go nowhere and have no stakes. You know, it was like this this like fake out and then like, whoop, never mind. That's done now, except for the part, you know, except for her being injured. It was really, really frustrating to me. And I was like, well, what, you know, what was the point of that? Like, you know, like she's dead for like four seconds, kind of. And then like we get this big dramatic scene of Bellamy screaming in agony because he thinks his sister is gone and then like five seconds into Bellamy's screen time he's like oh she's alive you know it's okay which like I'm glad I like that I I liked that Bellamy figured it out you know I felt like that that was in character for him you know and like Bob Morley of course did like a fantastic job you know like seeing the realization on his face and all that but it was just sort of like what was the point of all that and I think on rewatch one of the things that I was looking for when I rewatched I was like all right can I figure out what the point of that, like, did Octavia actually need to die, quote unquote die, in order for this episode to happen the way that it did? And I think, as far as I can tell, there are two reasons that that was arguably a necessary development. Um, And the problem remains for me that neither of them have anything to do with Bellamy. So reason number one is, She had to be seriously injured and collapse on her way back to Arcadia in order for Ileon to find her, in order to get Ileon to Arcadia so that he could blow it up. So, And then in addition to needing her to get there. So the the difference there is if she hadn't been injured, she would have made it back to warn them no matter what. So like Octavia didn't need to be injured or or to have the fake out death in order for her to warn Arcadia. But she did have to have the fake out some sort of like major injury in order for in order to get Ileon to Arcadia to make everything, you know, to make the final sort of plot twist happen. So like on a plot level, I think as far, you know, that was what I kind of figured out was was necessary. And then the other reason why she had to and then so so but that could have been accomplished with like an injury. The reason why she had to fake out die is because, like, she couldn't just be gravely injured by Echo because if she had just been gravely injured, Echo would have just taken her back to Polis. So Echo had to think that she was dead so that Echo would leave her and go back to Polis so that Ileon could find her and take her to Arcadia. And then attached to that, I think, Echo had to believe that she had killed Octavia in order for the next steps of Echo's character progression to move forward so i think it was like partly it was like partly a plot thing to get ilion to arcadia although like i mean you know there's got to be there had to be another way to get ilion to arcadia but that that seemed to be the mechanism that they that was going on there the plot mechanism and then the the character thing i think seems to be primarily for echo it hasn't changed anything for octavia yet as far as we know but like it is early yet for that so okay um you know we don't know she was too busy being like almost dead and then trying to stop ilion and then you know 
being almost dead again in Bellamy's arms in this episode for us to know whether her fight with Echo or her brush with death has sort of changed anything for her internally. But I think the, the really frustrating things remains. Like all those, so those are the reasons why that happened in plot and the main character, it seems to me that it's moving forward. But Octavia dying is or should be a humongous thing for Bellamy's character. And it was like zilch, you know? And that's the part that is just like really frustrating. Because we saw him react to the news and then literally his next dialogue in the show Oh, I think she's alive. The whole season so far, one of the things we've been talking about is like the recurring theme is who grief turns you into. Loss and moving on and how people handle yeah. grief. Ilion and Octavia and, yeah. and Clark ostensibly and Yeah, you know. and, and Abby, Jaha, even like all the different ways that all of these different characters, Monty, Brian, the way that everybody handles grief and loss of the people who are important to you and who channels that into productive things, who channels it into destructive things, who lives inside that sort of forever like Jasper, who tries to push through it and move on. And so the fact that we have no information about what Octavia's death did to Bellamy in that context feels bizarre. And and maybe we will, like maybe it was rushed for plot purposes tonight and we're going to see over the long term Bellamy dealing with the after effects of that. Does he become super overprotective of her? Does that again, but even then, like even if that's true, that's just like reverting him back to a different version of a season one self. Right. And even if, okay, so like, I, I mean, like, I guess I'll be slightly less annoyed by it if they return to that sometime later. And, you know, like I can imagine sometime later in the season, there being some big scene where Bellamy is like, when I thought you were dead, I learned blah, 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 blah. And that'll, right. you know, like at least there'll be some stakes for it. But I just, I don't think, I still don't think that that will, I don't think that that fully deals with like the the frustration or the weirdness of us never, ever, ever getting to see that, you know? We will right. never get to see. Like we might later have Bellamy be like, let me expo- exposit for you. Right. This thing that I thought or felt when I thought you were dead. But like... It's the thing that we were talking about with Jason about the show Don't Tell. This really feels like a thing that we should have been shown instead of told about because it's a game-changing moment for one of our primary characters. It's it's the most terrible thing that could ever happen to Bellamy Blake in yeah, his entire exactly. life. exactly. It is his absolute exactly. worst-case scenario. It is what he came to Earth to prevent. Yeah, this is his greatest fear come true. Yeah. And we don't even get to see for a, a se- like, we get to see like a nanosecond. You know, we get to see like him screaming in the first few seconds. And then we get to see him looking teary for another like 10 seconds. And that's all we ever get to know, apparently, of what it means for Bellamy Blake for his greatest fear to come true. And I just think that's like really a huge disservice to his character. If it comes back later, if they have him talk about it later, I think it's a huge disservice to his character not to let us see that. And it's a huge writing mistake to tell instead of show. And if it never comes back, then it just feels like weirdly... Like like they decided they wanted to have this thing happen and they just decided to ignore the stakes of the thing that they decided to do for the character for whom it has the biggest stakes, which is just like a bizarre writing choice. What's frustrating, I think, is they put him in a position where... The opportunity was right there. Like, he was with Kane. 
Yeah. He's with somebody that he could have talked to about this who was also yes. going through something. Like, they put him in a position where, and I, maybe maybe there was a scene and it got cut. We don't know. But they, they wrote him into a situation where if ever there was anybody with whom we could watch Bellamy openly and nakedly and honestly go through this emotional moment, it's Kane, who's also grieving for Octavia, who also feels responsible, and who is one of the people, you know, besides Clark, that I think that Bellamy could be the most honest with about this. And so it felt like it felt like a missed opportunity on so many levels. And all, I mean, and also, Kane's emotional response to Octavia was entirely, I mean, Kane was basically a race in this episode. Yeah, no, he wasn't there. He got like one Kane line. barely existed, yeah. And that's frustrating. Like, that was frustrating, too. Like you said before, this is taking us right back to the season three problems, where where there's giant emotional stakes for characters to events that we just, like, skip over because we're in a rush to get to the next plot point. And so we're left being like, I guess it could kind of mean this. I don't know. You know, like, I'm filling in the blanks, I suppose. And, and, you know, like, honestly, as as you're talking about it, I was thinking about, too, because, like, another part of the episode that um, just, like, really didn't work for me on really either viewing very well was Bellamy's scenes with Echo and then with Riley. For a number of reasons, I think partly the Riley thing because we just don't have any attachment to Riley. You know, it's right. just sort of like, Riley's who the fuck a cares real about problem. Riley? Yeah. <laughs> but I think even the Echo conversation, like the, the conversation that Bellamy had with Echo, uh, you know, I liked it a little bit better the second time. But I think... As far as Bellamy is concerned in that conversation, I felt like what the work, if if those scenes were doing any work for Bellamy as a character, it was spinning his wheels from season three again. They're sort of retreading the, like, look, I'm going to have yet another storyline and yet another episode where I prove that I learned the lesson of the Grounder Massacre, which I'm pretty sure at this point he's had, like, five of those scenes. So, like, if there's a part of the audience that doesn't buy it, they're never going to buy it, you know? So, So part of it is just me being, like, really impatient (laughs) just sort of like okay can we stop having bellamy like stop every five seconds and being like i'm a murderer i'm a murderer like we know it okay but the other frustration with that is and i still don't say this like i like echo i really like echo as a character and and i am interested in her but again it's like with octavia's death feeling like that was mostly about echo i think those scenes were you know, they were retread for Bellamy if they were doing any new new character work, it was Echo. And and as far as Bellamy is concerned, you could have gotten the same sort of, like, if you needed to show Bellamy processing again, war is horrible, it, you know, it, it costs these lives and it's unbearable and I will do anything to avoid war again, you could have gotten that same work done, Bellamy talking to Kane about Octavia because she just got killed because a war broke out again. Exactly. You could have done the same thing and actually let us see the stakes of Octavia's quote-unquote death for Bellamy and for Kane. And we even got a little setup for that at the end of the previous episode with Bellamy saying to Kane, you know, no matter what we do, we always wind up back here. We always wind up back here, yeah. Yeah, you could have picked up that thread of conversation between Kane and Bellamy. Um, You know, given given Bellamy's sort of like pessimism in general and also his feelings of guilt about himself and that conversation they had in the first episode of the season, Kane and Bellamy, like that would have been a great way to pick up there. Yeah, I just, I just am, I don't really know what the point of, I don't know what the point of that was. And, and, and as far as I can piece it together, 
the point of Bellamy's stuff in this episode doesn't do anything new. So it doesn't really feel like, like, I feel like I wouldn't mind like a couple of scenes that were kind of slow or, or weird or whatever, if they were doing really seemingly good necessary character work, but I don't think they, I didn't feel like they were, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's the, it's the Bellamy of it all that really gave this episode for me kind of a frustratingly, season three feel because he didn't say anything new in the like the monologue like his his speech to to riley there was nothing in it that he hasn't said before better and more articulately and in a more high stakes situation i think that riley as a character i think is a super problem i think in some ways what really didn't work for me about that scene and maybe this is something that might have landed totally differently depending on who Bellamy was talking to. But Riley shows up so kind of randomly out of nowhere in Farm Station that he sort of instantly became like a fandom meme because everyone was like, Riley, oh my God, where have you been all our lives? Thank God Riley's okay. And we're all like, (laughs) and everyone's like, wait, like going back through our Rolodex, like, am I supposed to know who this guy is? Nope, he just exists. Okay, so that's fine. So I'm willing to be brought on board that like this is a friend of theirs from the Ark that they thought had died and he was imprisoned in Farm Station and he has some kind of relationship with everyone. Like, I'm willing to go there. Except that... That, first of all, this was one of those things we talked about before that they have been not doing that I've really loved is like, you know, no one has really had to have the idiot ball. Like no one has made a dumb decision for plot purposes really in this season. It feels like the choices are being driven by who people are. So the idea that people would let Riley come along on this mission against Ice Nation after he's been like traumatized by being held captive by Ice Nation felt like everyone kind of falling down on the job with that but it was only it was like okay we have to maneuver him into this position where he can like almost go crazy so then Bellamy can talk him down this is the recurring problem with Farm Station and Ice Nation, is all of this was told to us instead of shown. So the idea of the the specificity of the hatred and frustration that everybody in Farm Station feels for Asgeta and how deeply visceral it is. You know, we have a little bit more of that with Riley because we did see the slaves, but like... Well, you know what I think it is? It's like, okay, so so we don't have any... We have no idea who Riley is. We got right. like, a, like a minute of him in 402. So we saw him as a slave, but we didn't actually spend any time with him as a character there. So other than knowing that he'd been a slave, we didn't even really see very much of his experiences as a slave. We just like saw him doing work and being dirty and scared. So we don't really know him. We don't know what he went through. We have since not been told anything about the experiences that he had. We don't have any, I mean, we don't know, we don't have any attachment to him as a character. We also don't really have any backstory other than sort of just like generic, it was bad. Like you were saying, it's a kind of like, and it's all informed. And then also, I think like this episode, there wasn't really, like you were saying, like there's no kind of logical motivation for him being there or doing anything that he did other than I guess for Bellamy to go make that speech right that's what I'm saying like if you don't buy that the speech is necessary then it's like why is this happening (laughs) yeah and and the only the only other thing to hold on to is that one of the things that 
Bellamy, the thing that Bellamy says in the speech that on the surface makes the least amount of sense that I'm assuming is the reason that the speech was made is that he tells Bellamy like you were saved for a purpose, which doesn't feel like it comes from anything. Yeah, I mean, like the rest of his speech, it just didn't really feel I guess it didn't feel really organic. You know, it was sort of like, right. We are now in the woods with our best friend Riley, and I will deliver the speech. Right. You know? Yeah, and Bellamy's like, send me. I know Riley. And I'm like, do, do you? <laughs> do, do you, though? Does, but, like, does anyone? How? <laughs> <laughs> um, Riley is apparently, like, the most outgoing guy in the world. And then the other problem, of course, is that I don't think, and like, no one, not a single person believed for a second that Riley was ever going to actually shoot Roan. There was no, po- there was just no way. That was just not happening. So it was just like, and also, I mean, like the other, so it was like the number of like, I just, the entire time I was watching the first time, I was like, Bellamy, just grab his fucking gun. Like, you right. all you have to do is grab the muzzle of the gun and pull it up. Like, why are you talking to him? It's not like he's in a place where... You know, like, you get up, he got up, like, right next to him. You know, he's, like, moving around wildly. Like, it's not like if you, like, you know, shoot your hand out, he's going to pull the trigger right there. And and Roan wasn't even in his sights most of that time. So it was just sort of like, it was like, why are you speechifying when you could just, like, solve the problem by grabbing his gun? Which is, I've, you know, I, so, yeah, so I didn't buy the, like, stakes of the, the scene The stakes ever. were so low. And it felt differently when they were up on the ridge, like, the first time... Riley almost shoots Rome when they're on the ridge. Monty is trying to talk him down. He's like across the ravine. They can't really communicate with him. He's, you know, he's got his laser sights on Roan and you're sort of watching him kind of, and he's sort of sweating and shaking a little bit. For a moment there, I was, I was feeling it because I'm invested in Monty and Harper and Miller, Dad Miller. And so I'm watching them watching what's happening. Well, and also they were far away from Riley. Like they couldn't control anything that he did exactly and so in that moment it felt really tense they're trapped in this like rock ravine they're in this like kill box there's no like it it was a it was a great tense setup for something to go terribly wrong you know it's like it's a tinderbox one person does one wrong thing and then it just completely like all goes to hell and so that little slice of it i thought worked really nicely where you have clark you've run an echo you know there's snipers with their guns pointed at Roan, but Roan's got soldiers with swords to the throats of Cain and Bellamy. Everyone is sort of tense and and on high alert. And one person, you know, like your finger slips and your gun goes off and then it's like open season bloodbath. That part of it I thought worked really well as a sort of like high stakes kind of action moment. It felt like it kind of deflated when they're in the woods. Clark and Roan hadn't even come out of the cave yet. And so Bellamy could have just walked up to Riley, bonked him on the head, taken his gun, been like, you're fired. Yeah, there was no reason it had to had to happen. Like, there's no reason that Bellamy had to make a speech. Like if Bellamy was up there with Monty and he's shouting at Riley from the other side of the ravine and he can't reach him by doing anything except either yelling at him to stop or Echo shoots him with the arrow, that would be one thing. Yeah, exactly. But he walked right up to him, like... You're, like, literally, like, four inches from his face. Just, like, move your hand out and grab the gun and pull the muzzle up. Right, right. So I think this is one (laughs) of the, like, my kind of recurring problem with this episode was it felt like for the first time, really, this season, we were seeing people make out-of-character or bizarre choices 
explicitly only to move forward a plot point. And that was, and because that was my biggest frustration in season three and because the first four episodes of season four, it really genuinely seemed like they had done a big about face and had moved away from that to where like the things that were moving the plot forward were the characters doing things that felt incredibly in character. And so I was just really disappointed. I, you know, like I, I really wanted to love this episode. Like I really wanted to, yeah. you know, to feel like the show sort of was continuing on this hot streak of people behaving like themselves again. And I, and I will say, I, I think that the Abby Raven Jackson storyline, I thought was pretty much no perfect. And we'll get to that in a second. It was like, it was really, it was everything kind of on the other side, but I felt like once again, there didn't seem to be any pressing reason besides we have to get Ilian into Arcadia so we can blow it up for the Octavia storyline to unfold in the precise way that it did. And there didn't seem to be any particular reason for Riley to even exist in the show yet, let alone to be on this mission, except potentially to get Bellamy to give a speech that we mostly are witnessing through the lens of Echo watching him give it. So again, we don't yeah. really know. Like, so it just sort of felt like we're just moving chess pieces around the board again in a way that feels really unsatisfying. Where I think I think it felt like a big kind of step down from the first four episodes where it felt like we really weren't doing that anymore. Yeah, exactly. I I, I agree with you. And I also think, I mean, I was thinking about it too, because I don't know. I think maybe part of the issue is so I think <sighs> There's that moment in the cave, Roan's conversation with uh, Clark in the cave, where she says, I'm trying to save everyone. And he says, no, you're not. You know, he said, and he says something about like, you know, you're grieving Lexa, but you didn't learn from her to see beyond your clan. And Lexa rose above clan and you're not rising above clan, something, something. And I, and I was really like, that line really like bugged me too. And this is something... Since we're since we're on our sort of like here's what's bugging us right now kick, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's like I mean I think that's a kind of a piece of a thing that 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 Jason's been saying a bunch in interviews, which is Clark learned to transcend tribalism. Trans is about transcending tribalism. Blah blah blah. I think maybe like for the conversation that he had with Echo on the way to Riley, this was like meant to be a demonstration that, you know, he's transcending his tribalism because he's, you know, he has that moment where he's like, don't you get tired of it? My, my person, your king, et cetera, et cetera. So, and like that part, like, okay, like, I mean, you know, I guess, and, and then the sort of like him picking up the war makes murder of us all, I think, and him saying that pointedly to Echo is clearly meant to illustrate that like he's moving past this kind of us versus them, you know, like always at war logic. And I think it's meant to plant the seed that she's going to remember him saying that in this new way and sort of, so I think that's kind of where it's going. I think maybe, you know, I, I don't know what the hell that means about Riley, but, <laughs> right. but um, uh, other than I guess Riley is, you know, is, is still stuck in his like tribalism of they hurt me. So I have to hurt them. And so this is a kind of like moment of, Bellamy rising above his tribalism and then convincing someone else to let go. And so, you know, I think, like, I think probably the most generous reading of it is that that's what's happening. Again, it was a kind of, like, tell, not show. Rather than just having Bellamy, like, go through this walk so he could say this thing, so he could sort of, like, bookmark, like, check, okay, transcended tribalism. Next step. The whole thing felt a little kind of clumsy to me, you know? Like, it was just a little bit, like... We're trying to make some points. You know, it just didn't feel really, it was, right. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time. 
articulating what I mean by that. I hear I hear what you're saying. I think I think to me one of the things where where I felt like that Bellamy and Echo thing kind of swung and missed is first of all, like I, I agree with you. I think it is a little jarring to have Clark be the one who's accused of being fundamentally driven by tribalism when as far back as season one with Anya or season two with how hard she tried to save everybody in Mount Weather, she'll save only her people if that's the only option that she has, but she isn't motivated by that, you know, like it, but that is something that is really true for Bellamy in some yes, ways that yes. are different than her. And so that's an interesting thing to unpack. A version of that conversation or of that sort of scene between him and Echo where we see that, you know, like, <laughs> okay, so she didn't. She didn't technically kill, she didn't technically kill Octavia, but because she tried to kill Octavia and almost killed Octavia, it feels like the net effect of how Bellamy feels towards her should be the same. It's sort of sheer dumb luck that she didn't kill Octavia. And so I think the missing piece to me is a version of that scene where we see Bellamy looking at her like, you are the person who basically killed my sister. But to save everyone, I have to sort of cooperate with you anyway. And those two things being in conflict with each other and him choosing in this moment, we need to be a team, even though you're still the person who stabbed my sister, you know, and shoved her off of a cliff. That lets us live with the real human stakes of what it feels like for Bellamy to move beyond clan, because that means that he's choosing the greater good over Octavia. You know, like it means that he's choosing what's good for the sky people over his primal protective big brother desire to push Echo off of a cliff, you know? Where he would say something like, these chains would be around your neck, but I'm trying to save everyone else's neck, you know, like something like that. Like, like I'm, I'm setting this aside because I don't want my people to die and I don't want us to kill all of your people. So, you know. Right. And the chains line felt like, okay, we need to give him, he needs to say something to remind the audience so that we know that he's still mad about Octavia, but he didn't behave mad about Octavia. He just delivered that one line about it. And then he and Echo were like, you know, more or less functioning, like not like, not as like partners and buddies, but like the same way that they were before she tried to kill Octavia. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, I think the fact that Octavia turning out to not be dead, it's like it, it rebooted his relationship with Echo back to factory settings. You know, like it just took it back to where it right, had been which before. doesn't actually make any sense, right? Because Octavia almost died. Right. Like she was willing to kill her. And so it feels very puzzling how fast the stakes of that deflate. And so I think that that's a factor that complicates the question of the whole transcending clan, transcending these sort of us versus them boundaries, which is an interesting idea. It's an idea that I like. There's something that I really like in the notion that are we effectively at this point dispensing with the geopolitical grounder versus sky crew game of thrones jockeying for power and polis kind of storylines that have really been sort of a running thread in the show for the last several seasons is this deal that clark and roan have struck the sort of like blood oath they've sworn to each other even in the absence of arcadia now they're sort of permanently tied together like all right we made a bargain however we survive you're gonna survive so like we're in this together that's interesting to me like the sort of the total erasure of clan lines on an abstract political sense is very different from 
individually how that feels to people. You know, like this is it's the it's the Pike election thing all over again. You know, it's like Kane comes home and he's like, surprise, we're grounders. Lexa is our queen. I signed a thing. I have a thing on my arm. And I went ahead and committed us all to become the 13th clan, which politically was totally the right move in a big picture sense to deal with the threat that was in front of them. But how that felt to people, I think was it was a key reason why so many people probably were swayed towards Pike because Kane hadn't asked them. And so they were not signing on to have the boundaries of who belongs to who and who is part of what clan erased for them, you know? So, so I think there's the sort of like, there's the big picture and then there's the, how it lands with individuals. And that's an area where, because we didn't get to really dig into that super deeply in season three, because there was no election episode. I like the idea of, you know, how does Arcadia feel about the fact that now they can save even less people. And now the option that they even thought that they had is gone. And now whatever they end up doing, they have to share it with ice nation. You know, there's interesting ongoing stakes to that. But it, it felt like we sort of zipped past how that idea of these two antagonistic groups being unified, like I think Bellamy and Echo are supposed to kind of personify that. And it feels like they're accelerating that too quickly. Echo's mistrust of Bellamy and her mistrust of Sky Crew and her protectiveness of Roan, Echo felt very in character in this episode. The missing piece was... I want to watch Bellamy violently internally struggle with choosing the greater good of peace with Ice Nation and Sky Crew over his feelings of somebody having set out to kill his sister. And it felt like that just got zipped right past, you know? And so then it sort of takes the teeth out of all of it. It takes the teeth out of the speech to Riley. It takes the teeth out. He doesn't feel like he's surmounted or accomplished anything in kind of establishing this new peace with Echo, you know, so it just, it, yeah, it, felt, yeah, yeah. it all felt kind of toothless. I just, I, I feel like I'm, I reached a place where like I'm adding, you know, I'm adding dead Octavia with, along with the election episode to the list of things where my perception of how the rest of this season unfolds is going to be forever shaped by the fact that I didn't watch that moment that I had to be able to watch unfolding for the stakes to feel real. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think that's a really, I think that's that's a really good explanation of a lot of the sources. Because I, I mean, I think like toothless is a good way to put it. I, I was feeling like it felt flat. And I think that's a really good explanation of why it fell kind of like, it just kind of fell flat. It wasn't like fundamentally like bad or anything like that. You know, it wasn't, right. you know, and I think it's interesting to go back to the to the Clark part, that, that idea that, that Clark has only has recently had to learn to transcend tribalism that this is like a new thing that she's still not doing well or whatever like i i just i it was a little it's a little frustrating to me like it, it, if that's going to be a part of the story it just feels like a weird sort of retcon to me because clark has always been you know like since season 1 with with anya you know she's always been a character who looks to figure out common ground. Like she's always looking for a way to like, if there's like, you know, with with like the characteristic Clark thing, find plan C, you know, like when Rowan right, says, right. okay, your choice is this or this. And she finds the middle ground. Like that's what Clark always does. And she's always done that. She tried it with Anya. She worked her ass off to build that coalition with uh, Lexa in season two. And the reason it fell apart isn't because of Clark. It's because Lexa chose her clan over Clark's clan. And then Clark right. was forced to choose, choose, like the only reason Clark chose her people over the people of Mount Weather 
at the end of season two is because Lexa chose her people over Sky Crew and abandoned Clark. So, like, that wasn't on Clark. That wasn't, like, a sign that Clark had a tribalistic outlook that she had to overcome. So this idea that Clark is, like, transcending tribalism and still in progress and, and that, like, Roan of all people, whom Clark was lecturing in the first episode of the season about Lexa's legacy, that, that Roan is turning around and lecturing Clark, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was like, why do people keep always trying to teach Clark lessons that she either <laughs> manifestly doesn't need to learn or that she literally taught them first? You know, it's just, like, kind of frustrating so like on first watch i was like really 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 annoyed with that scene um second watch i felt a little bit better because i think on second watch you know knowing it was coming and and thinking about it how it was going in that scene i'm i'm not sure i I think on second watch I i felt a little bit more like okay you know, Roan said that to Clark to get a reaction from her. Like, he said it to get a rise yeah. out of her. I don't think he necessarily said it because it's true or that we're meant to take it as true. I think he said it more, like, as a, as a like, a way to kind of get under her skin. And then I think also as a way to remind us that she's still Lex- grieving Lexa. You know, I think that was a little bit of a, like, I feel like that felt like a moment where it's like, oh, we have to, like, textually remind you of this because it's going to be, you know, relevant again in a minute. <laughs> I was I was making a joke earlier when I think we were texting that it, it felt to me like they're putting this line in here to remind us that she's grieving for Lexa so that next week or whenever it is, you know, if she hooks up with Nyla again, this is what they're going to splice in and put it in the previouslys. Right. So we remember why this is happening. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like someone has to say it. <laughs> so I think that's why it was there. And I was a little bit more like, OK, this is not actually, you know, like, otherwise that scene, I think, is like completely, you know, in character for Clark. And, and that and that the argument that they have totally makes sense. You know, like they each yeah. think that the other person has gone back on their alliance out of nowhere. And they're both feeling defensive. They're both feeling very defensive of their own people. And they're both sort of feeling wary and unsure. And they're trying to figure out a middle ground. You know, I thought the blocking and the shoot, like the way it was shot was really beautiful. They come in, they're sort of like on opposite sides of that. Um, that like fall of vines and then as they move closer together in the negotiation they come like physically close together like I thought it was really like overall it was really nicely done it was like that one line that just and I think that probably even wouldn't have jumped out at me except for how many freaking times that Jason said has said in interviews like she's transcending tribalism and every time I saw it I was just like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) sorry Jason but I just (laughs) I just don't buy I just like I don't buy that as an as a plausible character arc for Clark. I just don't. So, like, if that's going to be a piece of her character arc this season, I think I'm just never going to... I'm just I'm just never going to be down with it. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I just... I think I will say something that I thought of when you, were, when you were talking and that I do... Something that I did genuinely like about this storyline that I think works and i'm interested to sort of see where they take it in in a way that it that it impacted that we saw it both with roan and clark and with bellamy and echo i liked the kind of running thread of the four of them you know like the two leaders and their two seconds everyone is so fucking tired of war and that was interesting like that felt like yeah. a new yeah like nobody yeah. wanted even echo who's sort of the most i think probably like the most kind of shoot first ask questions later of all these characters. <laughs> Nobody wanted a war. Clark was mad and Roan was mad because each of them felt like the other person, like we had a deal and you broke it. No, we had a deal and you broke it. Like neither, but neither of them wanted to break it. Neither of them wanted a fight. Neither of them wanted to go to war. Each of them perceiving because of 
you know, because of very poor communication, basically, perceiving that the other person had violated the deal that they struck. And so it's like, all right, well, so now we have to show up with our guns. So now we have to march over here with our army of, you know, of archers. And so the idea of just the sort of fatigue of this ongoing conflict, what it's done to them, how impossible it makes it to put it aside and deal with a bigger problem. Like Clark's sort of impatience that she has to keep dealing with war bullshit when she's trying to stop the planet from exploding. Yeah. Like that's yeah. interesting to me. And and Roan being like, here we fucking are again. Like, why can you sky people not like Roan's point of view is also so totally plausible. And I think you're right. I think I I think the idea that the Lexa comment was a dig, you know, because he was pissed at her. And and maybe hopefully not so much that that the story is saying that Clark needed to be taught to care about other people besides her own people because that doesn't that doesn't quite ring true for me but but it makes sense as a thing that Roan would say because Roan's very tribalistic that's true and he also knows that Lexa is that's like a chink in Clark's armor that's that's a punch that he can land yeah that and then saying when she's like I will kill your people he's like well we'll take out some of yours including Bellamy and Kane he knows the chinks in her armor and he strikes at all of them and that makes sense. That's a very smart, that's a very Roan thing to do. He's reasonable, but he's also pretty ruthless. Like, he will use every piece of leverage that he has. Yeah, I really, Roan I really liked in this episode. Yeah, no, I thought he was great. I think it's because he took off the crown, which is sapping his life force. Um, (laughs) So he got his mojo back uh, because he wasn't being crushed underneath Grandpa Theo's crown. I thought overall that, that negotiation in the cave scene was a great scene it was like and you're right like the sort of general weariness like i don't want to do this i don't want to do this well why are we fucking doing this you know like that right kind right of, uh, yeah <laughs> that i'm really i'm really into that yeah and it's like it's a pretty new thing in the show that i really like that mm-hmm. this is you know one of the this is kind of like one of the first times if not the first time possibly where we've had two sort of opposing forces almost go to war and then it doesn't happen because they successfully negotiate their way out of it. Like it failed with Anya the first time in season one. Um, in season two, it worked, but only because only after Clark killed Finn, you know, like they still had to lose something. Clark still had to do something horrible. Somebody had to die. You know, season three, it didn't happen with, you know, multiple times it didn't happen. Well, I guess like Clark talked Lexa out of slaughtering Arcadia, but there was still the blockade, you know, like it was still kind of like, so this is really the first time where you've had two forces kind of at the brink of war and they actually did find common ground and come out of it. You know, so that's cool. And I think in that sense, you know, watching the second time thinking about the Riley thing and all that and trying to think in the most, in the most generous terms, like what is this trying to do? You know, like what is that? And I think you're right. There's a bunch of really good core ideas in these parts and part of it is, like, the the war weariness, you know, just, like, everyone being tired. Um, part of it is really sort of demonstrating Bellamy saying, can we be done with us versus them? I'm just trying to, like, fucking get through the day without anybody dying. And that planting the seeds for Echo. Clark and Roan both kind of coming to a point where they're, they're sort of compromising and working together and, and trying to save some of everybody. But I also think that, you know, on, on like, a microcosm, the Riley thing, I think, the way that it kind of thematically works, and I think the way that it was meant to work in this episode, is that you have sort of three situations in which you have, you know, you have a tinderbox that could that could go off, that could blow at any time, right? One of them is the army in the gorge. Clark and Roan work that out. You know, Clark talks Roan out of attacking. That's diffuse. The second one is, is Riley. 
and Bellamy successfully convinces Riley uh, to give up his gun. Although Riley, although hilariously, when Echo and Bellamy are walking back and they they meet up with Roan and Clark, there's no sign of Riley. So who the fuck, like, where did he go? Right. <laughs> He's just, like, wandering off into the woods with his gun to, I don't even know. I mean, I guess they probably sent him back to the army, but it's just like, why would you not, like, why would you let Riley out of your sight for an instant after yeah. that? Like, that seems like a really bad move, guys. March his ass back <laughs> at gunpoint. Yeah, seriously, like, he's off somewhere with that horse that Clark left Polis with that she lost somewhere between Polis and Arcadia last season and just, like, vanished into the thin air and never to be seen or heard from again. But, yeah, but so, like, I mean, I think Bellamy and Riley was, you know, like, Bellamy and Riley was the sort of interpersonal version of what Clark and Rowan were doing. So Clark and Rowan are the sort of, like, basically official leaders of their people, so they're negotiating for their people. And Bellamy was kind of, like, negotiating for a person. You know, he was trying... And he also, obviously, like, if Riley had killed Rowan, it would have started the war. So he was saving everyone. But his was a kind of more intimate version of that. I think that's... that It was meant to be some, like, strong echoes. There's some, some parallels there. And I think the reason, you know, the fact that we don't have any attachment to Riley we don't know who he is or why he's doing this you know or, or what his relationship is with Bellamy or why Bellamy gives enough of a fuck about him not to just like wang him over the head with a rock you know <laughs> right and and also you know so there's like a bunch of reasons why the stakes weren't there to kind of make that hit home the way I think it was supposed to um but I think that you know that parallel was was that, that was a parallel that was meant to be happening there I think I think like thematically that's how those things were going together and then the third one, which is intercut with Bellamy and Riley, is Octavia and Ilion. So you have the other Blake, and you have another person who's been hurt terribly, who's seeking vengeance, who's trying to find a way, some sort of catharsis for their pain, but sort of in a misdirected way. So, so Riley's trying to figure out how to deal with what happened to him at the hands of Ice Nation. And he's sort of like misdirected it into thinking, well, I'll kill Roan and that'll solve it, but it won't. Ilion, same thing. He's trying to sort of cope with what he did under Ali, so he's sort of misdirected it into this generalized violence towards tech. And so you have the two that work and then the third one that fails. Clark and Bellamy are able, they succeed in sort of talking down, in sort of averting this, you know, this explosion. Um, and then you have Octavia as the third version of that where her attempt fails and then we get the actual explosion. But I think there's like stru- structurally strong parallels there, but I think it was undermined by some problems with the stakes. And then I think Roan and Clark's negotiations, which was a really, I think, over like fundamentally a good scene. And Zach McGowan and Eliza Taylor are awesome together. Like, I just, like, Zach McGowan was great in this episode. You I, know? Love, like, yeah, I love, yeah, I love him so much. tiny looks, like, he conveys so much in a glance, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and him and Echo, their, like, unimpressed looks are always just, like, so hilarious. You know, they spent all this time sort of negotiating, we each get 50 people, which is sort of, like, this big thing, like, oh, my God, how the hell are you going to sell this? And I thought it was really interesting that Roan makes a point of, when Clark says, you know, are your people going to go along with this? And he says, I'm a king. They do what I say. What are you going to do? I, I thought it was really interesting that you sort of underlined the fact that they that they ha- have fundamentally different forms of government and leadership. Mm-hmm. That persuasion mm-hmm. is a problem for Clark in a way that isn't a problem for him. And I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. You know, I wonder if that's going to go somewhere. And it was really, I think, 
the fact that the arc was blown up before we ever got to like have a yes. moment to sit yes. with those consequences really, really did like it totally undid that whole Clark Roan thing, you know? Right, right. Yeah. This this is this is the problem with this episode was that it set up things that felt like they were gonna have enormously exciting ongoing stakes, and then two minutes later it was like well, that's fine. We're uh, that's over. We're done with that now. You know, same thing with with Octavia being dead. This is the version of that in that storyline is the idea of Clark having to go to these people who know that she made a list of a hundred people and be like, actually, we can only take fifty, and seeing how they respond to that piece of news, I was like, whoa, holy shit, that's a big thing for Clark to have to sort of face down to deal with. And then it was totally like, nope, she never has to have that conversation. Yeah, exactly. No one will ever know that that negotiation took place. It will never be relevant. You spent, you know, right. 15 minutes in that cage having that fight for literally nothing. Yeah, so that that felt like a missed opportunity in terms of the really nice work they've been doing of complicating Clark's relationship with the people of Arcadia in her leadership position. You know, like all of the cool Clark and Jaha stuff that we had and all of the stuff with the fallout of the list and what is the role of the list and how does the list shape how everybody sees her? How does she feel about herself as a leader having had to make these choices? And and so then, so then taking this and then saying like, okay, now we're going to double the stakes. You can only keep half of those people. Everyone still hates you. There's only room for 50. They have to share a bunk with Ice Nation. Go break that news to them. And then that we didn't even, that we didn't get that moment. So I, I, so this is something where I feel like the big question that I have now, and this is where it sort of gets to, I'm on the fence about some of these things until we sort of see where they go next. Because if she still ends up in a position where she has to explain to the people of Arcadia that she struck a deal with Ice Nation where basically... Whatever happens to the Sky People, however they end up surviving, whatever the plan is, they are inextricably bound to include Ice Nation in it. I'm really interested in that because shit is going to go down. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that it could remain relevant. It could come back around. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of ways where, like, some of the some of the character stuff, the kind of, like, new... I think reinforced kind of newish bond between Ron and Clark could come into play easily next episode. We know that they're going to go on, a, you know, like she and Bellamy and, and Ron are going to go on like a kind of Mad Max fuel right. run thing. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so there's a bunch of ways that that could still pay off. Right. I'm not ready to like write the whole thing off. But I do think like within this like single episode – it, it was just kind of like... It felt a little Abby's Hospital. It was like they built up a thing it, it and then Abby's immediately hospital. disappeared. Yeah. I feel more invested, certainly, in Ilian as a character than I do with Riley. But I, th- I think I had similar frustrations with the unfolding of both of those stories only because I think everything Ilian did made sense for who Ilian is as a character. Like, it felt like... The trajectory was straightforward. It made very clear sense. We we watch him with this kind of crazy anti-technology cult. We see the extreme lengths that they're willing to go to and pull us. We see him kind of come to this conviction that tech is fundamentally bad. But then I think that you're, you're required to make some leaps, like the idea that he knows how to find the server room. I mean, or even that he knows that the server room is the most important room. 
Well, right, exactly. Like the heat, the the amount that you need to believe that Ilian knows about how the ship is laid out for him to take one barrel of of gasoline and a torch and blow the entire thing up. That's a leap. And also the idea that nobody w- would notice that he was just kind of wandering around. I mean, like, I guess, you know, like, they were all trying to save Octavia. Yeah, and nobody but Octavia knew, nobody but Octavia knew that he was not somebody who could be trusted and she was unconscious. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as they know, he's, like, a nice guy who brought her back. But, right. like, it was still really weird. Like, literally everyone is gone. Like, he's just sort of, like, wandering around. I, and I think, like, part of the problem is he was alone. So there was never a moment... With Ilion, up until he's like about to do it, and and Octavia is trying to talk to him, you know, talk him out of it. There was never a moment we got with Ilion where we got a sense, got like a, a look into his mind of where he he is in that episode. We haven't seen him for a couple episodes. We saw him smash the flame, you know. We sort of pick him up again here. So he was kind of like inscrutable until he's actually in the midst of doing it. In, in a similar way with Riley, although we know Ileon better so you can sort of piece together what you, you can sort of be like, oh, right, he hates tech, so this is why this is happening. I felt like we didn't we didn't get, I need a little bit more peek into Ileon's state of mind. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. A little bit more about like, maybe, I don't know, like what it's like emotionally for him to be in this place that he strongly, so strongly associates with, with Allie. You know what I mean? Instead of yeah. just him being like, I'm like looking around and now I'm walking down the hall with like, you know, a wheelbarrow and now I have a torch. And I and I also feel like one of the pieces that was missing is we're not at any point led to believe anywhere along this that Ilian is a person who is is violent towards people. Destructive of tech is yeah. one thing, but being put in a position by Ali to have harmed, I mean, like, specifically because it was his family, but I but I think because of the pastoral life that he led, the peaceful person that he was, the fact that he did violence haunts him. The fact that it's his family was, like, it makes it worse. But I, but I don't, he wasn't, like, a warrior before that. And so the idea of he's in a building that he knows is full of people. And, and so are we meant to believe that at some point he's been radicalized by this anti-technology cult to a point where he's perfectly willing to take mass lives to atone for his well i know i don't think so because he does he does say to octavia that he says um no one has to die today which i i took to mean that he thinks he that he doesn't think that he's gonna kill anyone but like he's lighting a whole building on fire. Like you know, what is he? Yeah, no, like- I know, no, I know, I know. Like it's, I mean, I think this is part of the problem because it's like we don't actually have a clear view into what his motives or intentions are. So, yeah, so it's it's tough to tell. I mean, like the like no one has to die today makes me made me think he's after he wants to destroy the tech. He's not intending to kill anybody. But like you know, and and all of those hallways are empty, which is also sort of weird. With like, for, they're empty one second, and the next second there's like literally hundreds of people flooding out of it. You know, right. so it's like, does he like walk down the one hallway where there's no one, so he thinks that no one's home, and so he doesn't realize that there ever like that there are children in there. You know, which children that they were very careful to show us when he lights it on fire. Does he assume that everyone's going to get out? Does he not care? It's like it's not at all clear. I, I mean, I took that to mean that. That he did not intend, he did not set out to kill anybody. 
But that does actually strain logic a little bit to believe that he would actually think that there's no one around for him to kill or that no one's going to die if he like. And then the other thing, of course, is like, even if no one dies in the fire, you know that this is their home. You know, like you're still burning down their home. They're still going to be homeless without any food or shelter or supplies when you've burned this place down. So... Yeah, and I guess yeah. he just, like, hates tech so much that he doesn't care. But it does really sort of, like, there's a really fast leap from, like, I want to take out Sky Crew to now I'm running around with this, like, anti-tech gang to I was wandering through the woods, but then I was like, why don't I go burn down all of Arcadia? There's a way to get there that makes sense. I think if we had seen more of the intermediate steps where he goes from I hate Allie or or, or whatever his understanding of, of Allie and this thing that Allie is – he hates that thing extrapolating from that to hatred of sky crew who brought that thing into their lives and hatred of all technology those things all make sense but it also doesn't feel you know like for for him to do the thing that he did on some level he has to be okay with not just banning sky crew kicking sky crew out of the coalition you know so i I think there's there was something that felt initially a little bit more I guess when we first met him like not like I want every single one of you to be murdered but like I want you to go away yeah yeah or like at least he doesn't care you know he's like I hope I don't directly kill anyone but whatever you know like (laughs) right 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 exactly yeah and now the Ilion who is lighting fire to a building to to destroy what what he perceives to be like this is the heart of tech right this is like this is where tech resides these are the people who brought this tech into our lives these are the people who caused this horrible destructive thing his understanding of how it works is very limited like maybe he thinks that there is still a piece of alley or alley components in this somehow like that okay that's fine that all makes sense except that you have to believe that he has come to a place where he's totally okay condemning this entire people to death either directly through the fire or indirectly through the fact that they now have nowhere to live and that's the piece that it feels like I don't feel like we saw Ilian become that person and so either either he did and it was shown to us off screen in which case it then we don't get the emotional stakes we need to get out of it or we're somehow meant to believe that his intention was not to take any lives and he's just really clueless about the consequences of the choice that he made but like either either way it feels really narratively unsatisfying because you know because he's clearly a character that we're going to be set up to spend some time with he's in the next episode the little press release photo batch that they sent out has pictures of octavia with her gun to his head while it looks like kane is trying to like talk her down from executing him so it clearly seems like Ilian's feelings about what he did and Ilian's relationship with Sky Kerr are going to become kind of an ongoing thing. There was just a, I think overall, this was one of five or six places where I just felt like I'm missing a piece. Yeah, it's like we skipped a step. I didn't hate where it landed. I'm I'm ready to be excited about where it goes next. I don't think people were across the board behaving wildly out of character. It's like they're all things where I'm totally willing to go here with you on all of these things. With a with the caveat of that they each needed like another ninety second conversation between two characters talking through some piece of it, and then everything fits. Then the Bellamy and uh, thinking Octavia is dead 
grief thing fits, then the Riley thing fits, then the Ilion thing fits, and every, then the Clark and Rome, like all these pieces fit together. We just needed more time, you know? And so I don't know if this is an episode where there's just like, we're going to find out later that there was like a ton that got left in the cutting room floor. I don't know if there are things where they were sort of like, well, we have to do 400 things in this episode. And so we're going to have to process the emotional component of those things after the fact at a later date. I don't know if there are things where we are meant to already be in the place we're supposed to be by things that happened previously. And it just happened that I am not there, but I was supposed to be there. You know, I don't know. But I just, but it felt like three quarters of a really great storyline with some pieces missing that really felt like you had to make some real leaps to make things make sense. And I think just because the first four episodes felt really clean in that way, and this one felt like it just yeah. had had some big holes in it where it was like again like i'm i'm willing to be persuaded that this is a thing like i'm i'm absolutely willing to go there with you it would have helped to have fleshed out a couple more little beats of this so that i sort of felt like you know you're you get you're giving me the information that i need for that person's choice to make sense yeah no i totally agree i should say i think it's a reflection on how strong the first part of the season has been that this episode that's like really like fine. It's not a bad episode. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. weaker, weaker than the previous ones in ways that they haven't been. You know, I think it's sort of like it suffers in comparison to how great, you know, the, the episodes leading up to it have been. Yeah. And I don't think that it's like bad. It's just like not totally working on a few levels. And so, so like, I mean, it's nice to have the luxury to nitpick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, um... it really feels like it's been, it's been an exceptionally strong season. Yeah. I've really, really enjoyed individually all four of the previous episodes. And I've also really enjoyed the arcs that they're setting up over the long term. I've really enjoyed seeing these characters sort of coming back to kind of the most core versions of themselves and their relationships. There's been so much that I've really, really, really loved. I I wonder if maybe this episode sort of suffers by comparison because I enjoyed the first four so much. And then watching it again, I was able to sort of evaluate it like on its own merits and be like, okay, there's a lot here that I really like. Yeah, yeah, no, that's kind of how I felt the second time around. I was like, all right, I see, you know, I still see the stuff that isn't clicking for me, but I also see a lot of stuff going in a good direction. And one episode where, like, you had to get from point A to point B and it was a little bit bumpy, it's like, that's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and overall, I'm I'm perfectly, like, as annoyed as I was, or sort of, my initial reaction was like, man, all that list stuff was for nothing, you know, like, all this buildup for nothing. I mean, I think... I'm totally 100% happy and excited for for the next episodes to sort of like hone in on a single problem, like a single solution, Nightblood solution, trying to figure out how to make this work, wild improvising sort of thing. I mean, I think it was one of those things where a twist didn't really work for me within, fully within this episode on its own, but I think as in the over the course of the season as a whole, I think it's good that they got rid of Arcadia as a kind of fallback. Like I do think that that was something that needed to happen that is going to in the long run open up more you know like better storylines than than keeping it would have you know yeah Uh, or open up more than it closed yeah like in the in the the overall long arc of the season i think i'm i'm like good with everything that happened me too me too um yeah it's sort of like the micro stuff it's like it's like the little stuff that sort of like you made this into a big thing 
and then was like, nope, never mind, faked you out. That doesn't matter on the, with the character stakes and the emotional stakes. That it was a little bit frustrating with, but just within this this one episode, you know. So it's like, so so yeah. like in the scheme of things, that's fine, <laughs> you know. Um, after now that we spent like an hour and a half. Right. About it. <laughs> yeah. No, but I but I do feel like and actually this is probably a good maybe this is a good transition to the Science Island storyline, but I, I felt like like I was thinking about this earlier today. Remember last season where one of the problems with three A was that there was three huge competing storylines happening. You had Clark and Lexa in Polis and Ice Nation and all that drama, and then you had Pike and Arcadia and all that stuff, and then you had the beginnings of the Alley City of Light storyline with Jaha and Murphy and Amori, um, and there was so much going on that things were really cluttered, and you know, and we were sort of skipping over and fast forwarding through huge things like you know, anything resembling character development for Pike that would make him kind of um, nuanced enough that we would understand how he persuaded people to vote for him and the belly stuff. And and then in 3B, part of why I think 3B worked like gangbusters was because every character was in the same storyline. And and so I feel like this feels like, this felt like a, like a piece of that. We're, we're beginning the process of funneling every character and every storyline towards Becca, Nightblood, Space, Cadigan, like the intersection of those things, of everything happening in the lab, where we need to get to a point where there's only one possible solution. And so everything that seems like an alternate solution to save humanity has to be taken off the map. And everything that is a storyline that could get in the way of the characters focusing on that storyline has to get taken off the map. So that's why, you know, you have things like Clark and Roan strike a deal that seems its net effect is essentially ending the possibility of any future conflict between Sky Crew and Grounders and putting them sort of permanently on one team. So what that does is sort of wipe off the table anything where like now we're going to get a war showing up as a distraction um and arcadia has to burn to the ground so that the idea of a hundred people being saved in arcadia as a potential fail safe to like protect humanity is removed from the table we're tying up the loose ends or just sort of lighting them on fire and throwing them away in order to funnel the story towards the one place that it clearly seems to be going which is the only thing that they now have that's a possibility to protect themselves is Nightblood and the complication that they introduce for that. Well, there's the two big ones. And this episode is one that it can only be made in space. Um, and, <laughs> and two, that the, the two brains that they need in order to manufacture Nightblood, their brains are experiencing a huge problem. So I think because we're in episode, you know, five of 13, I think that it's way too early in this season for any one of these solutions to be like, well, cool. All right. So Arcadia is going to take a hundred people, 50 of yours, 50 of ours. All right. We're good. So we're just going to go ahead and keep patching it. And then we're going to hunker down and survive the apocalypse. Bye. Like it's way too early for anything to be like working smoothly yet. So I do think that what this episode did that worked nicely, I thought, was it basically moved all the pieces in place where there's one solution left, and that solution is possible, but full of complications, really, really difficult, and involves now 
many other characters and many other storylines. Like they have to get the hydrazine there. And, you know, Murphy comes into the storyline at some point. Clark's going to come into the storyline at some point. Somebody somewhere is going to have to go to space. Are Raven and Abby going to get sicker? Is Jackson going to be the only person there who isn't hallucinating? You know, is something going to go wrong because Abby and Raven's brains are you know, not at peak capacity. Like, there's all kinds of different sort of complications that they're introducing that will, I think, narratively have the effect of keeping the stakes in this plot accelerating so it isn't too easy for them to be like, and now we've cracked Nightblood, so now everyone's fine. You know, like, I think that they're just... <laughs> they're doing what they need to do to make sure that they have a whole season's worth of realistic complications in the question of how everyone's going to survive and this episode exploded one of the lifeboats seemed to imply that one of the other lifeboats is hands down the best shot that they have going and introduced a whole bunch of complications with that so I think structurally I think it really did its job like I think we could you know we might look back at this for the end of the season and be like this episode did everything it was supposed to do yeah no I mean I think like in terms of the long arc the full structure of the story of the season, I think probably it, it's fine. In the long view, I don't have, I don't have like big picture issues, I don't think. You know, it's all like the, it's all like the little like within the episode, yeah, yeah. smaller emotional stakes of things that were set up and then don't pay off. So it's one of those things where I think like possibly, you know, if you went, if you were binging episode, uh, season four, it probably wouldn't bother you. You know, yeah. like if you're just binging, if you're like going straight through, you just watch 404 and then you watched and then you're immediately going to 406. Like, I don't think on a binge watch, it would be that big a deal. But because we're going week to week, I think it's, it's just like you live with these big moments longer. They get built up for you bigger. You know, they, you have more time to feel like they're going to be big. And when they don't, you know, it's like a bigger letdown. Whereas if you're just binging and we literally saw Octavia quote unquote die and then come back like a minute ago. And then it didn't, you know, and then it kind of was gone. You'd be like, oh, huh, anyway, you know. So so I, I do think, <laughs> I do think the way that this episode sort of looks from the, on the, on the full season scale versus on the individual episode scale, I think is very different. And it's going to look very different when we're done. Like, I mean, that, that would be my suspicion. So it's just one of those things where it's like, I think as an individual episode, there's a lot of stuff that didn't really, like, taken on its own as like a discrete episode. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that I was sort of like, this, you know, this wasn't my favorite. Um, but I, it's not, it, none of it was anything where I'm like, uh oh, I'm worried about the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, so, I think so too. I, I still think that the shape of where this season's going is really exciting to me. And I think that, you know, I, I, it feels like the worst case scenario is we're going to get to the end and look back and be like, all right, so episode five was not my favorite. Can I say just one more thing about the other storyline before we move on? Uh, which is that Monty was awesome this week or this uh, episode, and I just oh my want God. To, yeah. I just want to like give a shout out to Monty for really being the MVP of that gorge scene. Once again, Monty saved the day. Monty saved the day, <laughs> and I and actually, and Harper had a good episode. Yeah, too. She, did. she did. Yes, yes. She didn't have much to do, but everything that she did was terrific. I like that we're we're fleshing her out a little bit more as somebody you know who's incredibly smart and competent and tough and together but also has fears and vulnerabilities that she lets show the way that we see how incredibly worried she is for monty when monty goes down and exchanges places with bellamy the way we see clark have to kind of snap her out of it you know when they bring octavia and like it's just like little teeny tiny moments where it feels like we're getting 
a richer portrait of like who Harper is as a person. And then the little connection between her and Monty, I thought their relationship feels more and more believable. And, you know, I sort of plot wise, but also character wise, he did a lot this episode with not a huge amount of screen time, but was really, really key. And I, and I also, I think one thing that I liked about Monty's little mini arc in this episode is the reminder that we get his sort of first interaction with Clark is he's very kind of eye roll, you know, she's wanting to know if Bellamy and Stephen's back yet. And he's like, yeah, they're here. And we forgot to tell you, like, he's yeah. still super pissed <laughs> I do at her, like the you know? continuity. Yeah. That he's still mad, you know, that he's still like, we're not cool, Clark. Yeah. But then immediately a, the first, the minute that Octavia comes in and then the minute Clark in, you know, and the people are in danger in the ravine, he's feeling his feelings, but also, that we're watching, you know, like Octavia being brought in almost dying is the kind of thing that instantly snaps everybody out. In Harper too, like, you know, Harper was also pissed at Clark. Everyone was pissed at Clark, except for Nyla. God bless Nyla. But, um, but so I liked the idea that they're reminding us that, and this is something that's, you know, from, from minute one of the pilot, you know, when one of them is in danger, everyone is willing to put their shit aside and deal with the problem on the table. This is, and it was the same way when Clark and Raven were fighting over Finn and then Finn is stabbed and they have to save him together. And it's like, we're going to put aside our shit because one of our own needs us, you know? And so I think in some ways, like one of the plot functions of the Octavia storyline is that it really did recenter everyone's relationship with Clark where like they can be pissed at her, they can disagree with her decisions, they can mistrust her, but everybody has faith that she's going to do what needs to be done to save Octavia and everybody is willing to do exactly what she tells them to do. And so that little moment that I really liked, especially because then later we see Monty, you know, really being the one who kind of takes charge of the plan when they're in the ravine like he's the person who figures out what's going on and has the fix and that's all despite the fact that his frustrations with Clark are as strong as they ever were but he knows how to you know he know he has his priorities right and this is this is the kind of stuff that gives me real hope about the sort of ongoing fallout of the letter or of the list kind of continuing to be a thing is that we're still seeing that it affects kind of on a personal level how people see Clark as like a leader and a person and it doesn't stop the plot in its tracks it doesn't make them want to be like well you should just die then but it but it does kind of continue to resonate so that's the kind of stuff where I feel like I'm I'm hopeful I'm hopeful about that yeah yeah no I agree I agree and I also think that I mean I really liked that Monty mentioned Pike when he was suggesting the um when he brought up the 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 strategy you know I thought that was like a nice little bit of continuity and especially since Harper's reaction was really you know in character there but then also just Monty just kind of like the acknowledgement that yeah no I know like he was he did terrible things but strategically he was a smart guy a nice little kind of callback um shout out to us Pike apologists out here (laughs) (laughs) and especially because Pike is a topic on which Monty and Harper were not on the same side yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were split. Harper was on, you know, Kane's secret spy, you know, spy kid adventure squad, and Monty was helping his mom. So I like that little, you know, like they're so sweet and their relationship is so sweet and I love how it's evolving. But I, I did enjoy having that little reminder of this really monumentally huge thing that between the two of them, as close as they were with each other, was a big divider. Well, yeah, and the suggestion that Monty learned things from being on Pike's side. Uh huh. That yeah. you know wasn't entirely a negative. Yeah, yeah. Like he's he's 
he learned to be a more strategic thinker, you know, militarily. And that knowledge came in handy, you know, and it makes sense that Harper's immediate reaction is like, what the fuck? Yeah. And Monty's yeah. like, look, like, this will work. So so I like that little touch. Like, I thought that was, I thought that was a nice little callback. Yeah. For, for a relationship that's been mostly a really sweet, heartfelt little sort of side plot that hasn't had to bear a lot of huge narrative weight, I did like that they sort of gave it a little reminder of those complications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's not, like, all happy-happy all the time. Yeah, and not all, like, Monty's cute and Harper's cute and they're cute together, but it's, like, yeah. there's a reminder of the fact that they've been they've been on opposite sides before and that they are, there are things that they think really differently about. You know, like, it makes perfect sense that Monty, who is so pragmatic, would sort of, you know, flip through his mental Rolodex and be like, all right, this is the best option. I don't particularly care in this moment that it came from Pike. Because this is the plan yeah, that'll yeah. work, you know, and, and Harper, you know, the person that we've, been, that we've been introduced, you know, to her as the person that we're sort of seeing who's really emotionally affected by the things that she's been through, you know, that we see the sort of continual resonance of those things. Of course, she reacts the way she reacts. And of course, he reacts the way he reacts. Like, it's all very nicely in character. But I like that it gave them something where it. We're letting, you know, we're letting Marper get a little messy, and I'm into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I gave it some some complexity and some nuance that I feel like before it was a little bit missing, you know. So I yeah, was, no, I I was down. I was down with that. Yeah. Science Island. Science Where Island. Everything is just clicking, except for and including Raven's brain. Because I live on the West Coast, so I watch everything after everyone I know has already seen it. I came into this episode knowing that the that the cabbie fandom was like, we didn't like this at all. (laughs) (laughs) I was sort of prepared to be very stressed out by the Abby content. And when I watched it, when I got to that point, I had that exact panicked, visceral, holy shit, holy shit kind of reaction. And then I sort of like, I mulled things over and I read some things that the people had said about it and I talked it through with, with Sam and Brittany and I processed my emotions and then flipped on it again. And so then watching it again the second time, I was able to really watch it on its own merits and I really, really liked every single piece of it. I kind of liked that in its own little way, it was a three-person bottle episode for Raven and for Abby and for Jackson. Luna is in that storyline, Murphy and Amoria are in that storyline, you know, Clark and whoever else is going to show up with the Hydrazine, you know, in the next episode. So, like, more people, like, it, it, it's going to become sort of more fleshed out. But for the purposes of just sort of introducing this part of the story when it's just those three people going full on hardcore science nerd like it was so exciting it was really cool to see them all kind of at peak science brain their sort of reverence that they all have for becca um for the complexity of her ideas the lab set is amazing there was so much about it just the kind of the the setup of it, even before getting into what actually happened. And I just love Becca so much. Like, I think she's just a, a character I hope I hope that we get more of, whether it's flashbacks or through kind of whatever Raven's sort of brain connection with her is. I was ready to be hyped. That storyline nailed every beat. It totally delivered. It was tense and high stakes. It was totally character driven. It was so relationship driven. It was so much about the relationship between Abby and Raven. It was like so Dr. Mechanic. Oh my God. This was this was the best Dr. Mechanic we've gotten since season one when they're repairing the Russian dropship. Yeah. <laughs> The relationship is so close and and the storylines have been kind of 
putting them at odds with each other for most of season two and season three. They have this very close bond. They obviously care about each other so much, but most of their interactions in season three were negative. And, and, and for a lot of season two as well, you know, in season one, you have them working together as a team. You have this amazing trust that Abby places in Raven and, and really understanding and recognizing her total brilliance. Um, and, Raven being sort of like the one person, you know, even when Clark is furious at her mother, like Raven's kind of unquestioning, like Abby's a badass. They have this tremendous respect for each other that, that makes their scenes together so fun. They have such tremendous chemistry. They're a pair that I really, really love. But season three with them was really hard to watch because at the beginning, you know, like Raven is hurting and she's miserable and she won't have the surgery and she's lashing out at Abby and Allie using Raven to get to Like it was just, it was sort of like season three was like, it was all horrible. So seeing them both at the height of their intellectual powers as brilliant lady scientists that was amazing and then seeing it so much about their affection for each other like the moment where like where Raven slings her arm around her and she's like it's a two-seater like what do you say like you cook I'll drive and I was like oh my god I'm dead from how cute this is and part of it is you know I mean whatever's going on with Raven's brain is Jackson says euphoria is one symptom of it you know there's something a little sinister in hindsight once you kind of know what's going on about this kind of incredible buoyancy of Raven's moods but so it's so fun to watch her watch both of them get so nerdily excited Raven's like we have a rocket Abby Abby look we got a spaceship we're gonna go to space I'm so excited and I was just like (laughs) oh my babies it was beautiful and then sort of the come down of that of of Abby having to tell her you really can't let yourself do this because you know, it felt like shades of that same conversation where she tells her, like, you can't go out on missions anymore because your leg is injured. You know, it's like you can't you can't go to space because you have a brain thing. Yeah, and, and I really, really like that really painful gut punch irony of the reason why Raven's brain is so amazing right now. The reason why she's able to do all this incredible stuff and figure out you know, that Nightblood only can be synthesized in zero G and, like, figure out that there's a spaceship and how to get to it is also the same reason why she's going to die. The fact that her brain is supercharged is also the thing that's going to kill her. That was really satisfying in that really painful sort of way, you know? And and I like that, that even Raven kind of pointed that out, you know? She's like, if I'm going to die, let me use this thing that I have to save everyone else rather than just convalescing or whatever and there's something really satisfying about that that kind of sense of like there's no free lunch you know like Mm -hmm, you get the superpower mm -hmm. this is great the superpower could save us but it comes with a cost everything there's always a trade-off you know this isn't just like a wee now I have a super brain there's that that it comes with like a serious consequence same with Abby you know like Abby I think it'd be interesting to see if she winds up with not just the sort of hallucinatory symptoms but also you know, some some of the, like, the enhanced symptoms where you have these two, you know, women who are incredible and so smart and so bonded together and they've, and they've been bonded together by so many things and now they have this bond too of the, like, I have to keep going even though I don't, you know, even though there's something inside of my brain, the brain that's going to save everyone might also be the thing that kills them. I was just yeah. like, you know, it hurts, it hurts, but in that way that's like, it hurts so good. <laughs> yeah, it, and, they, and they've done such a beautiful job all along the whole series. I'm always fascinated by any opportunity they find to draw Abby and Raven parallels because there's some really interesting ones. They both wear a symbol around their neck of a dead man that they loved. That's one piece of it. They had, you know, they have matching 
back injuries. Abby got shot glass yeah. and had her surgery. They were the two that got drilled in Mount Weather. Um, they're both women scientists. You know, they both have this relentless badass brain. And and so this is sort of another, I think, one of those things where they're these two people that have so much in common. And so apart from just the fact that they have this, like, apart from the relationship they have with each other, they're always structurally linked or, or paralleled in some really interesting kind of unexpected ways. And this is another one of them. So one of the things that I liked about that is all of the different ways that we see on both sides of the storyline that what Allie did to people is continuing to resonate. Ilian is sort of like one far extreme and Raven is the other far extreme. The Allie and the City of Light and how that affected people is sort of continuing to play into the story in some ways that are that are in this version like in this half of the story I thought were particularly satisfying but I also just really liked getting the chance to see their brains work and I and they also did a really good job of with the sort of with technobabble stuff with you have to kind of thread the needle really carefully they're scientists and doctors they have to talk like scientists and doctors but they also have to make it comprehensible to the audience who are not scientists yeah. and doctors and so how do yeah. you explain to us that the nature of the problem that they're having they can't get night blood to work by reverse engineering it from luna's blood it's not working why is it not working there's a solution to it raven figures out the solution is batshit crazy means if you go to space (laughs) you know but they but they explain to us really clearly in a way that we can understand it just enough to understand what the problem is and what the solution is without it sounding like they're dumbing things down and they and they use jackson i think really nicely sometimes as a fox populi you know like Abby explains things to Jackson in a way that allows them to be explained to us, the audience, but it always feels nicely in character and not patronizing, you know, like he's not like, I don't understand what's an RNA and a DNA, you know, like it doesn't like, he's, <laughs> he's still like, he's a doctor. He talks like a doctor. Um, But their conversations, I think often are used really nicely to kind of illuminate to the audience. Okay. Here's the thing that, we're wrestling with from the science perspective, but it's explained in a way where we're going to get it. So I thought they did a really nice job of setting up, here's the problem. Here's all the different things they've tried that haven't worked. Here's a solution. Here's why the solution is insane. And now we're going to throw in this complication of like twin matching brain aneurysms. Again, like with the Arcadia thing, they're struggling. This was supposed to be an easy fix and it is not an easy fix. They were sort of expecting this to become kind of like a miracle fix and it isn't yet. Time is ticking for everyone. Nothing is working like it's supposed to. And then we discover the magical solution and then we discover the magical solution has a huge flaw. When they released the clip of Raven flying, even though as soon as it happened, I was like, this has got to be like something's going on. Like she's hallucinating. But it was still, I remember like the first time I saw it, I had chills. You know, oh yeah just, like so weird and like amazing and like raven is smiling and you want to be happy but it's also really sinister because something weird is happening and i felt like most of that storyline was really thrilling like that there's a lot of propulsive energy in it and a lot of that had to do with the direction but i also think you know it's funny because like it was one of those the first time through like it felt like it was moving so fast You know, I was like barely catching details, enough details to kind of keep up, which sort of makes sense because that's what's happening to Raven is like she's moving so fast, so fast. And the second time was really interesting because knowing what was coming, I was able to be, you know, I was able to sort of put together like, okay, like Raven's looking at code and then she's looking at, you know, she had this like orbital schematics 
that she's looking at right before she has the seizure. And so I'm like, aha. So like, these are the, like, the, those are the signals that her subconscious brain is putting together. Yes. You know, like, yes, those exactly. are the like little bits of the leap that she makes, that intuitive leap that she makes that makes her go like, oh my God, zero G. Within the way that it's shot, the, the seeds of how Bra- Raven's brain is getting from point A to point B are all kind of there, you know? So I like thought that was really cool. You can go back and you can sort of piece it together. And then same thing, you know, when she figures out the spaceship, she sees, you know, she sees the fuel and she sees the, like, the orbital information and she sees the number of levels in the building and she figures out this place has to go a lot deeper than I thought. She puts that together really quickly, but all of the little pieces that she's putting together are there. So you can be like, aha, okay, I see the breadcrumb trail now. You know, like I yeah. can see it the first time, Raven saw it, but now I see the breadcrumb trail that led her to this conclusion. That was just kind of like thrilling and cool in a, in a like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's like all coming together sort of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brittany was looking at the HD caps of this after the episode, and one of the big clear glass boards that had something on it seems to be marking the positions of all 13 of the space stations in space. Um, ah, okay. So that yep. was that was one of them. Yeah, so watching it a second time, you can see, like, you can get there how, you know, how Raven's brain gets there. And in the moment, you're sort of like, wait, what? how did she, what? But but then you watch it again, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it makes sense. And so it was, just a, it was a neat little editing trick to show us the new way that Raven's brain is working. It was a cool visualization of it yeah it's like it's it's giving us bits of information too quickly for our brains to process them the first time which is the same thing that's kind of happening to to raven yeah so it's like a neat little sort of like formal way to reproduce what's happening to the character for the audience which i thought was really cool yeah i really loved that you know i think you said at the beginning like you you were worried about some big eugenics thing with abby and now you're not anymore and i actually thought it was really interesting because at the very very beginning of this episode the conversation that Abby and Jackson are having before Raven starts seizing, it seems like Abby's kind of verging on a darker place. Because yeah. she was pushing. You know, she's yeah. like, I need another, I need another sample. Where's Luna? And Jackson's like, she's sleeping. She's like, um, she's sleeping and she should be sleeping because we've taken like a lot of her blood. Um, and Abby has that moment where she's sort of like, I can't wait. You know, like, I'm just, we have to take more. I need the new sample. And like, Jackson talks her down. But I thought that was really interesting as a moment. You know, it's a sort of like another parallel with Raven. Abby's reaching this sort of, we're sort of verging on this fever pitch intensity, you know, where she's just like so fixated on solving this problem that she's starting to lose track of some of the details along the way. She's so fixated on the ends, on the solution, that she's starting, that she's kind of slipping a little bit in how she's thinking about the means, which is interesting, you know, and I think maybe like this is like little seeds setting up where we might see her get to that thing where that she says in the um, trailer, you know, like first we survive, then we get our humanity back. Whatever that means, you know, I think this might be a little hints that emotionally this problem is is challenging to Abby in kind of a new way. And I wonder, with like hallucination at the end, I do wonder if, if again, Clark isn't a tipping point. If she's haunted by that vision, if she's haunted by the fear, this like vision that she had of her child dying of radiation poisoning. Um, if that isn't something that might, that might sort of psychologically stick with her and, and sort of combine with that, that already like really ramped up sort of level of intensity that she has that's leading her to this point. Yeah. But you know, it sort of echoed Raven's unwillingness to 
pause and consider, is what I'm choosing to do prudent? Is it wise? Raven's kind of like, what's your problem? Let's go do this thing. We can't slow down. And she sort of convinces Abby that the the ends of this, the goal that we have, surpasses the concern about what this means for my personal body. But there's that kind of like parallel in, in, in that single-minded mania for achieving right, right. my blood, which I think is really interesting, really interesting. So what's intriguing to me about the Clark hallucination is, so so if as we are, I think, clearly meant to understand that Abby's hallucinations work more or less the exact same way that Raven's are. Abby has already seen that Raven's was prophetic. Raven's hallucination contained a piece of hard and concrete information that then immediately turned out to be real and accurate. And so it's not just like she had a weird vision. She figured out there was a there was a thing that was right in front of her that she figured out that was really important. That you know, and Abby being in a position where Abby knows that's a hallucination, which Raven didn't know at the time when it was happening. You know, like yeah. Abby Abby will know what that was. She will know what that means. You know, like I think the question is like, what is what is the thing that she's seeing mean? In the in the context of looking at what ravens meant, you know, like what's the what's the piece of truth? Yeah. What's the thing in the room that she observed that she didn't even notice herself observing? You know, what's the little core piece of that? And I and I feel like it's tied in some way to you know for Raven, the clue that she needed to get was that they can get the whatever the RNA to bond with the blood cells in zero G, but it manifested as a memory of her spacewalking. You know, like it, it manifested yeah. as like a personal thing from her own psyche. And I wonder for, for Abby, I think maybe it's that Abby, because what Clark says is you're running out of time, mom. So I wonder if it isn't that she sort of has subconsciously put together data suggesting that they have less time than they expected. And then it manifests in, you know, in, in, in like, because it's Abby, you know, like Clark is always in her mind. You right, know, like, right. And, and her sort of like, she's worried about saving everyone, but at, at the sort of base level, the number one person that she will always be most worried about is saving Clark. So like that sort of general concern of you don't have as much time as you think you have manifests as Clark suffering from the consequences of what will happen if she doesn't get it done in time. What's the real piece of information that manifested itself as a uh, radiation sick Clark? Well, and I wonder if it isn't because the very beginning of the episode when Raven is working on the computers, the thing that Raven is working on before she starts seizing is she says something about running diagnostics or something like that on the drone's radiation detection capability. So I wonder if there wasn't like a screen, there was like something in the lab where the drones were running that radiation detection Mm, algorithm mm, or something mm. like and so like and and abby was aware of the data that was coming in from the drones about the radiation but she wasn't aware that she was aware i wonder if that wasn't it yeah 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 yeah. to interject more claire's crazy abby pregnancy theory into the (laughs) storyline this so this came back up again with a vengeance in this storyline for um i was talking about this last night with with sam Brittany, and it, it remains it remains potentially crazy but um but first of all the only thing that could prompt abby to consent to letting Jackson give her a full physical is the idea that she might have something potentially like amiss with her brain. And like, otherwise, you know, otherwise there'd be no reason to do any medical testing on Abby. So the idea that Abby's whatever brain thing is at least partially like not exactly a MacGuffin, um, but that it's plot purpose is both 
oh, shit, they both have this brain thing. And also, you know, does Jackson discover something else when he's giving Abby her medical test with, like, A, that she's pregnant. B, (laughs) a lot of plot points in The 100 from time to time sort of pay homage to key moments from Lost in Battlestar Galactica. And Battlestar Galactica has a storyline where Laura Roslin, who's like the the woman political leader, she's like the basically the equivalent of like their chancellor. She's dying of cancer and she is saved by a miracle cure from fetal stem cells. And I think it's also and I think that also happens on Star Trek Voyager sort of the idea of fetal stem cells from a child that has a particular, whose parents have a particular resistance to something are a miracle medical cure. And so that, so that's the idea of is the thing that sort of is the missing X factor either in Nightblood altogether or in saving Abby and Raven from whatever the brain thing is, is happening. And, and hat tip to Brittany, who is a huge Battlestar fan, who's a person who I remembered that, that there was sort of like a, you know, 11th hour sort of miracle cure and she's the one who was like oh my god it was because she was because the other character was pregnant so there's that as factor um and also that that could be another a a reason where abby couldn't go into space so somebody else has to go with raven to make the night blood and then also i you know i i think it makes sense that clark would be the person that she would hallucinate anyway but i think that the idea that the hallucination that appears to her that tells her that she's on the clock is her child like it just sort of it feels like not like that that's a that's a sort of a factor on its own but it feels like that just sort of they so it felt like there's lots of different little things where it's like we still don't know you know but (laughs) but if it was it's like all of these things feel like they would fit so like so i continue to be spinning conspiracy theories that the thing that's going to save abby and raven is the secret the secret cabbie baby is that nine days of boning that they did yes yes absolutely (laughs) so i continue to be wedded to my crackpot theory and secretly convinced that i'm right even though it sounds crazy when i say it out loud (laughs) if you turn out to be right i will be so happy i will that will be like the best (laughs) thing ever (laughs) i mean i mean it really like it it felt crazy before. It still feels maybe potentially crazy. <laughs> but I really feel like the the Battlestar Galactica, the, the miracle cure to the untreatable illness is fetal stem cells from a baby who is resistant to that particular thing. That's a sci-fi trope that's been used successfully in many shows that this show kind of spiritually, I guess, draws from. So I don't know. So so that's the that's today's update in Claire's, <laughs> Claire's pregnant Abby theory. But regardless, one of the big questions that was immediately everyone in the fandom was sort of bouncing around was, are Raven and Abby going to die? You know, one one or both of them. And I think the fact, my, my feeling is the fact that this is introduced as a complication this early in the season, I think is actually a good sign. You know, if we were three episodes before the finale and all of a sudden everyone had a brain issue, I was like, ooh, that would be, that would feel more (laughs) alarming. But to me, it feels like part of what this does is, like you said, it pushes both of them past the bounds of sanity and reason in their determination to find a cure for this. It really dials up, I think, for each of them individually, the urgency of finding a solution. It makes their brains occasionally untrustworthy in the information that they're receiving in a way that could be really, really interesting where, like, they don't always, if they don't always know when they're hallucinating, 
they could end up taking wrong turns or making mistakes or things could go wrong in the process yeah. of the sort of or, or solution. Alternately, if they start if they if they start to trust their hallucinations because the early ones were useful. Right. That could be a problem later if uh, you know if the hallucinations become increasingly like intense or you know spiral out into sort of wilder and wilder things but they continue to have like if Raven continues to have faith in her hallucinations even after right. those hallucinations stop having any efficacy you know relate or, or sort of relationship to reality that could be another complication I mean that like that's a really interesting you know how far can you can you trust your brain like they have to trust their brains completely because their brains are gonna, the things that are going to save everyone but how much can they trust their brains like that's a really interesting sort of question yeah and I'm really so I'm really interested in how that plays out because it feels like I think what this does really really beautifully is you know so we're set up in this is episode five of of 13 with okay so nightblood and space and and whatever else Becca's got hiding in her lab seem to be you know if salvation comes for these people it's going to come from something in Becca's lab like this is how we're going to get there but the problem with that is, you know, is introduced immediately, which is that the only two people that have the brains to make that happen are deeply and fundamentally compromised. And so so both the effort that they put into, are they also trying to figure out a cure or a way to manage, you know, what's happening to them? Does it, you know, get worse and worse to a point where... um you know, where one or both of them can't do their jobs. Like you said, they, you know, they start to sort of go a little bit more overtly crazy. I think what that does really nicely is it, it keeps us from getting too early to something that feels like an easy and organic solution. Minus that, okay, so you put Raven and Abby in the rocket ship with some of Luna's blood. They go up to space and make some night blood. They make four or five trips for how much hydrazine they have. And then like, bam, we're good. You know, so I think that yeah. there, there has to be a long-term, really complicated wrench thrown in the works to to keep that storyline feeling like it's it's moving somewhere and that we're never going to have a solution that just sort of is presented, you know, that easily. And and I something else I'm also really interested in too is that I I feel like this opens up some really cool ground for a more significant role for Jackson because Jackson being the person of the three of them whose brain isn't affected by this. Yeah, he's he's kind of like the the control, you know, like yeah. he's, in there, he's the calm one, he's the one who who isn't being plagued by uh, hallucinatory visions or like momentary breaks from reality or even like, having seizures. You know, so that so so Raven's right, right. like we you and I should go to space, Abby. Well, they can't go to space if they don't know when either of them are going to go into a seizure. You know, so like suddenly that's a significant problem. He's the only one in there who at any who isn't at any moment in in danger of like not just like hallucinating, but becoming physically not in control of their body, you know, in a way that could be really dangerous. And the pressure on him, you know, especially given his relationship to Abby, the sort of pressure on him that that's probably going to increase and increase as he has to be the one to say, like, hang on, wait a minute. Right. Sure about this. Is this really the right thing to do? Is this really the right way to go? Are you sure that you trust your hallucinations? You know, like, and and that tension. Like, I think that's really, really interesting. And he's never really, he's never been in a position to have to tell Abby what to do, to say no to Abby. He's never been the boss well, of Abby. Well, he's never like, been in a position, like, on a character level, he's also never been in a position where he had to doubt her. 
You know, like, right, like right. I think yeah. Abby has been his North Star. He can always trust Abby implicitly. Whatever Abby says is right, he thinks is right. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what does it do to a character like Jackson when he can no longer trust the judgment or the brain of the person who he's kind of like built his entire life around in some ways. Yeah, you know? and that he's in a position where he has to know what's, not know what's best for her, but he ha- he has to be making choices in Abby's best interest that Abby might not be capable of making, which puts them in the position of being really potentially at odds with each other in a way that is brand new. So I feel like yeah. if, you know, if he, and I'm, I'm just, I love Jackson so much. I love Sachin so much. I'm hoping that this, I really hope Jackson doesn't get killed off and that he, and that he's getting a big juicy arc. Cause I actually feel like there's a lot I'm really, really interested in, in how their relationship evolves as he becomes the person who is having to manage these two sort of increasingly brilliant and, and frenetic, but dissociated with from reality genius brains that are kind of unspooling and him having to be the person who is sort of reining them both in and i and i think that also too it touches a little on the kind of medical ethics questions we talked about last week you know like like abby kind of nudges at you know pushing luna too hard she gets she pulls back immediately one potential way this could go that i think would be really interesting because i was thinking like how can we get Abby Griffin to a point where she will transgress some some ethical lines? And I think maybe, potentially, the answer is put Abby Griffin in a, in a, in a situation where she doesn't believe that she's going to survive this. And there are things that she can do to save everyone else. If she thinks she is, she has, uh, she's, you know, has a ticking clock. Like, I'm going to die of this brain tumor or whatever it is within the next six weeks anyway. Is that enough to make her think, I'm willing to do this horrible thing? I'm willing to to do the thing that, that I wouldn't normally do to save everyone else because I'm going, because I I will make that sacrifice of my ethics because I'm going to die anyway and I'm going to do it so that everybody else doesn't die. I don't know that that's the way it's going to go, but I just feel like yeah. if you were going to get Abby to a point where she was going to do something that, that previously would have seemed unthinkable for Abby, I feel like that's maybe the way that it would happen. Yeah, I think... I think that could I and think I'm that sort could of be really it. interested in how that developed. Her knowledge that this thing is happening to her, how that shifts or changes her relationship to what means are justified by the ends. Yeah, and I and there's something that I really like about the idea of that. If we're gonna go there, if we're gonna go to a place of not just with Luna, but you know, at some point Gaia has to come back into this story. At some point, we're gonna end up with other Nightblood. Yeah, and maybe some of them are children, you know? Like, we, we, there probably aren't adult Nightbloods out there, yeah. If we're going to go to that place that it seems like they've been setting up by the way that all of these sort of pieces fit together, I'm really interested in the idea that we land at that place because of this sort of very deeply emotionally wrenching place that Abby and Raven are in of sort of desperation as opposed to it being, I guess, calculating. You know, like, I, I think... Yeah, that like calculating would be I would be out of character, but I think maybe yeah. a kind of like I will I will commit the sin that will get everyone else to the promised land because I'm not going to get there anyway. You know what I mean? Like I could see yeah. that. I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. And I I think that's something where I feel like I'm perfectly okay with us getting to a place where where she's doing things that sort of seem objectively terrible. If she's getting to them in a way where it feels like She's still at her core, Abby. She's still 
understands the significance of that thing. Like she's behaving like herself, you know? And, yeah, and so I yeah. feel like one of the things I think that the hallucination does that's helpful is that it sort of recenters us in reminding reminding the audience that on an abstract level, everything that Raven and Abby and Jackson are doing is to save humanity. But on a personal level, the person that Abby is thinking about is her daughter. And, yes. and so if yes. she's doing something crazy, she's not doing it for sort of, in, in an abstract sense, the way Lorelai Singh and Cage Wallace did things in a way that was more dissociated and big picture and abstract for my people kind of thing. Like for Abby, it's always about Clark. You know, and so if Abby is going to sacrifice something or cross a line or do something crazy, which she has done before in varying different ways, if it comes from a place of profound to the point of blinding her to consequences, love for her daughter, then then both you believe it and you also can understand it and have compassion for her. Yeah, exactly. If she's if she's facing death and tortured by this, the memory of this hallucination or maybe even like recurrence of it. You know, I think it's one of those things where it's like, this is the hundred, right? So, like, there is no character on this show, by the nature of the show, who doesn't have a point at which they would break and do a horrific thing. There's nobody on the show who is a pure cupcake cinnamon roll who wouldn't do something atrocious. The question is always, what is the thing that will push them there? And and if it happens, does it happen in a way that feels, like, earned and organic and, like, it's the character? And like you said, if they go there with Abby, we want it to be... We want it to be for Abby reasons. And I think this might be the Abby reason. Like this yeah. might be the sort of fault line that forces her to crack and do things that she and we never believed that she would. And I think that that's something that I feel like I'm willing to watch this play out. And I'm and I'm willing to back burner my sort of instinctive visceral horror of like, please, please don't put Abby in a eugenic storyline. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> because I do think that there is a way to do it where where it's it's hardwiring her into the kind of central question that all of these other characters are facing, which is the choice of one versus many. And what we've seen in the past is that, you know, Abby is a person who she will always save the person who's right in front of her. She will always choose life. And so I think when we've seen her get to those breaking points before, it's always, it's Clark in danger, you know? And that's what leads yeah. her to do things like sending Finn and Bellamy out, you know, sneaking them out of Camp Jaha with guns to go find Clark. The first time we ever see her, first and only time we've ever seen her at this until this point, take a life herself you know, she's shooting at somebody in the season three finale when she's like protecting Clark, you know, and she fires a gun and she shoots one of the chipped grounders who's coming towards her and she almost shoots Jackson. Yeah. That's the first time we've ever seen her pick up a gun. That's the first time that we've ever seen her do anything like that. And and you could see on her face that she was deeply conflicted about it. You know, she didn't look like a stone cold badass. She wasn't out there like, you know, black. Yeah, no, around. no. She looked like she looked sort of spooked. But at the same time, it made absolute perfect sense that's the choice that she would make in that moment. Sure, of course. You know? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I feel like this is, like, I think if we're, you know, like, if we're going to go there and the lens through which we go there is that this hallucination has has planted in her mind the notion that Clark specifically is in some kind of danger if they don't, that there is something that is spurring her along that makes her feel this kind of 
extreme connection between the coming radiation and Clark. That feels like a way to get her to make the choices that she sort of is headed towards making in a way where it's like, you're still Abby Griffin, and that after this is all over, you'll still be Abby Griffin. Between my first and second watching of this episode, one of the things I really, really had to sort of very carefully unpack for myself a little bit, um, and actually a little bit in different ways with, with the last episode too, is, you know, trying to kind of sort out Did I enjoy this? Does it work from a story point of view? And that's kind of one piece of it. And then there's also filtering for character bias. You know, there's me having to ask myself, like, you know, am I unhappy with this storyline because Abby and Kane are my favorite characters? And this feels like setting up a possibility that they're going to kill off Abby. And that's something that I find upsetting. Does it not work narratively or do I not like it in terms of character bias? And then the sort of third component of it that I also have to remind myself to sort of selectively filter for. There's a couple of characters in the show that I feel like get get sort of like disproportionately demonized by the fandom whenever they make like there's there's characters who can kind of do no wrong and then there's characters who can kind of like do no right you know and I think that Abby is one of those characters (laughs) where I think that she gets punished by the fandom when she makes ethically great choices that like a different character making it even like maybe Kane wouldn't face the same kind of backlash and so I feel like for me as a viewer I'm trying to sort of sort out am I like Am I stressed about this eugenics thing because I'm like, oh my God, like Abby is going to get so demonized for this and it's going to turn into a shit show. Am I stressed about it because I'm like, I like Abby and I don't want her to make bad decisions or do I feel like narratively it doesn't work? And I actually feel like the story is headed in that direction towards doing it in the way that will work as story. I think what they're doing with Abby this season so far is tremendously successful. Yeah, yeah. And I think she kind of got hosed a little bit last year because I think some of her stuff kind of got chopped out. She wasn't in as many episodes as she usually is. The whole, you know, the hospital storyline kind of got dropped. She was absent for a big chunk of the middle. So I think just purely sort of seeing her and Raven together being like the heart of the storyline and Paige getting so much interesting stuff to do, both for Paige and for Lindsay, the stuff that they get to do in this storyline is bananas. The tech <laughs> stuff and the like emotional complexity of playing the hallucinations and the seizures, the stunts. This is the kind of shit that actors really like digging their teeth into, you know, so it's really satisfying on that level. But yeah, but, it's, but I think it's just always interesting sort of looking at like, how do I feel about this? And why do I feel the way I feel about it? And then when I kind of like peel those layers back, does it work yes or no? So sort of like asking myself those questions about the Arcadia storyline, it was like, okay, no, I'm not like, I'm not just mad at the erasure of Kane because I wanted more Kane personally because I love Kane. I felt like it made the story feel lopsided and it cut out an important piece of Bellamy's character development that really could have, that they had set up a place to put that in there and then took it away. So I'm just sort of, I don't know, just kind of like checking like, like, why am I watching this the way that I'm watching it and feeling the way I feel about it? And is that there in the text or not? And with Abby, I think I, I feel really good about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, and that's always like, it's always a thing that you have to, you have to sort of like run it through the like, am I watching this as like, you know, as like a fan of this character or am I, watch, or am I watching it from a sort of like, as a, just like a fan of the show in general. And like, they are, often, you know, sometimes they're the same thing and sometimes they're two different things. And sometimes you do have to kind of go back and be like, hang on a second, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Setting aside my protectiveness of my babies. Like, exactly. what is this actually doing? Is it going to be okay in the long run? 
So we close with Becca, Cadigan, Vesta. Yes. Crazy shit. I have, I have actually, I was, I was reading more about Vesta. Um, and, uh, we'll get there in a second, but I think <laughs> I might have some more to add to your crazy cabbie baby theory. Ooh. All right. So, um, now is the part of Metastation where we dance. And by dance, I mean, <laughs> uh, we speculate wildly about our favorites, Becca and Cadigan. Friend of the podcast, Gina, last night went back and like listened very carefully to the conversation that Jackson and Abby were having while Raven was sort of floating. And very, very, so some like really interesting stuff. So there was in, oh, was it 402? When Raven was explaining to Clark and Bellamy kind of like the background of the radiation coming and then also explaining that they had less time than expected. If you like sort of like screen cap every, all the things that are up on her computer screens in that scene, one of the things that's in the background there is this sort of like internet story about this like deep space mining colony that was staffed by like convicts. There's like this news story about like convicts being sent into deep space to like mine an asteroid. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, int- interesting Easter egg. You know, who knows if that's going to come back. And we all made a lot of jokes about Space Australia, you know, and, <laughs> like whatever. Um, <laughs> so, but if you listen to what Jackson and Abby are telling each- are talking about in the background there, what Jackson is saying is he's, he's like, he says, oh, hey, Abby, like he's, he's talking about, I think, something that he found in Becca's records, which is that Nightblood was originally manufactured in order to treat these deep space miners to make them resistant to long-term exposure to the radiation of space. And it also, I think, it facilitated some kind of, like, sleep stasis for long-term space journeys as well. Yeah, it protected them from effects of radiation from being in space long-term. And also, I don't know if, if Nightblood put them into hypersleep or if that it was just, like, they were put into hypersleep so that they would be sent into deep space so that they could mine the asteroid. Something like that. So so the the miners who are out there in deep space mining the asteroids, are connected to Nightblood. Like, Becca was working on Nightblood originally as a solution to this problem. Potentially, you know, like, maybe as, like, a commission of some kind for the company that was doing it. And the name of the company was Eligius, which is spelled E-L-I-G-I-U-S. And Eligius, Saint Eligius, is the patron saint of goldsmiths and metalworkers. So there's this tie between these asteroid mining guys and Nightblood and also suggestion that Nightblood was originally some kind of like a solution to like a corporate problem that she then applied to the problem of the flame. And then also somebody, I guess, on Reddit, one of those great people who goes through and screen caps everything and then zooms in on all the screen caps, which I just don't have personally the patience to do. So bless everyone who does that and then tells us about it zoomed in on one of the microscopes that they were using in that scene and apparently found, like, the logo on one of the microscopes looks like the logo from Cadigan's video speech. It looks like the little logo next to the hashtag Four Horsemen, the second dawn thing. So that suggests that there's also a connection, which we had already been, like, like thinking that this was going to happen, but it seems to confirm that there is a connection between Cadigan and Becca, like some sort of connection between the two of them that existed at some point, either prior to or, or after the um, apocalypse. But it does seem like from this, that this lab existed before she went to space, before Allie got loose. 
So, like, possibly there's, like, a Cadigan-Becca connection. And we don't know. I mean, like, there was that bit that Jaha was talking about where he started selling off property two years before the apocalypse. So I don't know if, like, potentially he might, he might have been, like, an investor or something like that. There's a bunch of connections there. I think another thread to that is just the fact that their slogan is, From the Ashes We Will Rise seems to indicate in potentially very oblique way that space travel, like leaving the planet in some way, was part of his deal too. Yeah, I wonder if like the 13th level, you know, that like secret top level or whatever that existed, if that wasn't space, like if that was like a spot on a spaceship or something. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. Like maybe it isn't a secret hidden bunker. Maybe the bunker was for all the shitty low level 12s and belows. And then he and his like elite insider posse Like, what he needed their money for was to build some, you know, sort of secret private spacecraft. And is is that also part of his crossover with Becca's company? Yes. There was also something that Abby said to Jackson in response to that that seems like it might be a sort of little, like, hint of things to come. She said something like, that sounds like it would have been handy for us on the Ark. She sort of suggested some connection between what Jackson was saying about Nightblood being made to make people resistant to radiation and the fact that people on the Ark were extra resistant to radiation. Which makes me wonder if we aren't going to, at some point this season, get an explanation. You know, like in season two, they were just like, oh, we just evolved super quick in space. If this season they aren't going to be like, actually, you know, it wasn't like fast evolution. It was like some kind of treatment that people actually got. I don't know. So um, if if there's some kind of connection between these things in terms of like why people from the ARC have a higher tolerance and ability to metabolize radiation than people who stay on the ground do. Right. So that's another possibility, which I mean, I think like the open question there kind of becomes if Cadigan's plan was to go to space. The question is, did he ever make it? Right. Was he on one of the other stations? And if so, did he have any role in deciding to shoot Becca out of the sky? You know, like, did he stay up there? Or did he somehow come back to the ground too? Or did Becca somehow, like, fuck him over? You know, like, like the plan was for him to go to space too, and he never made it for whatever reason, possibly because of her, so that when she came back, there was, like, a, a conflict right. between them. I don't know which one is more likely, but like, I think that that seems like the kind of two main ways it could go. Yeah, I still feel like our kind of theory we were sort of parsing through in the first episode where he was introduced, the idea that if you look at what we know of the sort of grounder hierarchy and you compare whether it makes more sense that that infrastructure was descended from somebody like Becca versus somebody like Bill Cadigan, it really feels like... It evolved in a way that is much more in line with his mindset than with her mindset. Yeah. That makes me feel like Cadigan did not make it into space. And so potentially what that means is that Cadigan's secret 13th spaceship is not Becca's little two-seater. If Cadigan didn't make it, his working spacecraft full of fuel is still kicking around somewhere. And Jaha knows enough about Cadigan to be able to find it. The mining thing, the news article that Raven has on her screen is specifically about Earth has lost contact with this mining station. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Something happened. Something happened. Yeah. If Cadigan's 13th level was space and that's why it's called From the Ashes We Will Rise, 
from the ashes of all of you dead motherfuckers that weren't at a level 13 yet, <laughs> I'm going to fly away and ditch your asses. Like, if that's true, what a dickish motto. Like, what an oh asshole. God. Yeah. I know. I mean, that makes me like it even better because, like, that, like, like my instinctive <laughs> mistrust of Bill Cadigan is, like, the shadiest mofo alive. I already feel like he would do that. <laughs> I don't even know you, Bill Cadigan. I don't even know you, so but, Bill Cadigan. But I know you're that guy. <laughs> so if he didn't make it, his spacecraft is still there. The possibility that more than two people could make it into space, you know, on a second spacecraft either to make a shitload of night blood or potentially to go off in search of this mining colony or whatever adds kind of a new wrinkle because there might be more than one spaceship available to them. There might be more than just this little two-seater. And if something happens with the hydrazine in the next episode, you know, then again, are we introducing, like, the solution is this rocket. Fuck. Okay, well, now that's taken away because we don't have any hydrazine. What could be interesting about the Cadigan thing is that Cadigan could be for this season, I think sort of in a way what Allie was for last season, which is the point at which every storyline converges. Yeah. The anti-technology stuff going on with this cult in Polis makes a lot of sense if we, the audience, hit a point where we're uncovering that grounder society has sort of evolved from... Cadigan's anti-technology cult you know like that's a way to sort of loop Ilian in kind of thematically and the question of how to make the maximum amount of night blood to save everybody loops Gaia into it you know it Arcadia being burned to the ground and this being their only solution to save everybody brings all the sky people and all of ice nation everything sort of orbits around what is the secret 13th thing is it a bunker is it a spaceship? But what is the solution that is provided by whatever Bill Cadigan was up to that's going to be the way that we save everybody? I feel like the solution is going to be Nightblood plus whatever Bill Cadigan had up his sleeve. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. One thing I'm actually, I'm super hyped about that felt like maybe very, very lightly foreshadowed in this episode with the way they talk about Raven's hallucination where it's sort of like elucidated just so that the audience is like super clear, like Raven's brain is doing what it's doing because Becca's mind is inside it. And so part of what I'm wondering is, are we gearing up potentially for either Becca flashbacks or Becca's actual memories? Like not just like her scientific and technical knowledge, but like, Actual concrete memories where we're going to see some of this Becca Cadigan stuff play out. Are we going to get to sort of see or experience a little bit more of what happened when she came back down to Earth and how the two of them got connected and how all that stuff kind of went wrong? And that's something that I'm just enormously interested in. And it feels like maybe tapping a little bit at the fact that it's because her mind is inside of Raven's mind as opposed to just like alley code. It isn't just that she has the alley code, it's that she has Becca's memories. So that could open up some really exciting ground for, like, are we going to get to go back into Becca's story? Yeah, yeah. Like, and is Raven going to, is Raven going to have access to, not just that the audience sees flashbacks, but but if Raven has some memories, like, if something triggers her her memory of how Becca died or something, like, is she going to know things about Becca's, like, life experiences or or about her, like, relationship with with Cadigan? 
you know, or, or is she going to, like, see Cadigan's name or stuff related to him and sort of be, like, instinctively suspicious because she has these memories of Becca? You know what I mean? Like, is she going to be able to, like, intuitively know stuff based on, on Becca's memories as well as her knowledge? That that would be, like, kind of cool. If Raven's like, you know, I smell a rat, but yeah. I don't know why, you know? <laughs> and then the other little, like, tidbit that I noticed on rewatch is that the space shuttle that... Raven finds is called the Vesta 4, which is really interesting because so like it's it's interesting that it's called Vesta 4 because the fact that it's Vesta 4 suggests that there are three other shuttles somewhere with the same name. But then also like it made me think of there is a Roman goddess called Vesta. I think like it's very very interesting. So Vesta was the Roman goddess of the hearth, home and family. She wasn't usually depicted in human form. She was personified by fire, and in particular by this, like the, this eternal fire that sort of that was like always burning in her temple and was tended by priestesses who were called Vestal Virgins. So if you ever heard the term Vestal vir- Virgins, this is where it came from. And the Vestal Virgins were, they were sworn to, you know, to remain virginal and, and like dedicated to the goddess. So she was like one of the major, the like the major Roman goddesses. She's connected to Aeneas, who fled from the Trojan Wars to found Rome. And she's also connected to the first emperor of Rome, Augustus. So when Augustus declared it, you know, became emperor, he built a temple to Vesta in the Palatine, which is the, you know, the sort of like imperial palace. And so the emperors became priests of Vesta. So there's that kind of connection. But then there's like a bunch of other really interesting stuff. So, so she's a goddess of, like I said, of fire, of hearth, of home. She's connected with fertility. Like she was not only like the most clean and like virginal of all the gods, but she was also addressed as like a mother. She like in a kind of funny way because she's like you know she's this very she's a she's a female god and she's very sort of closely associated with like priestesses rather than priests, but she was also associated with so like her her symbols were fire and then also a phallus. And it was said that sometimes her priestesses would be sort of like magically impregnated by this like phallus that would emerge out of her flame. And then also there's like some weird thing where like it was also connected to the to the stick that was used to kind of like light the flame or stoke the flame. So it's like flame and phallus and sort of like put those together and she's kind of connected with new birth. Which might, you know, with like that thing being there with that that ship, which of course like a spaceship is also like a super phallic thing just like always all space you know especially that space just like <laughs> long and cylindrical and inside of a tube it's just like very phallic and you know like it's gonna right. blast off in fire so it's like fire phallus is like the actual space shuttle is like a fire phallus so if you want if you need more sort of like tin hat support for your abby is pregnant theory i think you could probably use the vesta as as a piece of I that. am absolutely ready to go there. <laughs> I'm ready to add this to the crazy. Um, she's also connected with marriage and to with like liminality or with like thresholds, you know, with sort of like borderline threshold areas, crossing of thresholds, which was, con- you know, which was con- considered sacrilege. You know, she sort of like, she like preserves thresholds. So I find that name like really, really suggestive in a number of different directions. Like I think, you know, the shuttle that is connected to Becca's creation of the flame, you know, being named after the goddess who is personified by an eternal flame, I think is a really interesting sort of connection. The connection to like the commander cult in terms of 
her being a goddess that is connected to like a flame but also to the establishment of like the pontifex right so like the emperor who is also simultaneously the high priest of the main religion you know so some interesting sort of like in terms of like with Gaia you know and and like and Gaia as a sort of figure of, of like the cult of the flame and her being like a priestess you know I think that's like an interesting kind of connection but then also with her being the goddess of like connected with marriage and the hearth and home, you know, like this being a season about trying to find or like reef or like figure out how to like preserve a place that can be home or like survive a fire and find a place like fire is destructive, but also fire is like a hearth, you know, like fire is like life giving. I think that's really interesting. Given that the thing that's coming, that's like the thing that's going to kill everything is prime fire, you know, like first fire. Like this is also like she's the goddess of kind of like the first fire. So yeah, so I just thought that was like a really interesting name. Like it seems like a very suggestive name to give to that ship. Yeah, I I think so too. And I think particularly with the introduction of Gaia earlier in this season, priming my brain a little bit to be kind of looking for those kind of classical literature and and kind of mythological connections. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think which which sort of you know are all along. I mean, like I had I had you know, we had tons and tons of Iliad thoughts last season. Right, um, which is actually why I was like, wait, the, the Aeneas thing stuck out to me, that she was yeah. a goddess connected with Aeneas. And with the Aeneid is the story of, you know, Aeneas, who is a warrior in the in the Trojan Wars, who fled after the, edge of the end of the Trojan Wars and wound up sort of wandering right. and wound up, you know. So, like, so the foundation of Rome begins with the Trojan War, which yeah, I think, it's like a know, sequel. So like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's so there's a kind of connection there that I find interesting. Like if if season three was the Trojan War, you know, if season four is like the founding of the new of the new civilization city. out of the ashes, right? Like right. out of the ashes of the Trojan War, which is a disaster, you know. Like and and Troy was just was destroyed, and Aeneas was a Trojan, you know. So he's fleeing from the destruction of his home to find a new place to found a new civilization, which seems to have a lot of like resonances with what's happening this season. Metaphorically, I think the thing that's really interesting about that purely just in terms of the Iliad Aeneid sort of parallels is this notion that the destruction of Troy really, you know, the, the reason that it carries the weight that it carries in classical literature, in, in the sort of Greek and Roman kind of literary, like, pantheon, is because it, like, it was sort of symbolic of the death of a way of life. You know, it was sort of, like, it was the, the great walled city that nobody could destroy, and the war was really kind of a culturally turning point. And, and so, so I think that the idea of destroying the walled city that everyone thought was impregnable forever, and the sort of ongoing kind of cultural aftershocks and how that shook up the you know the world and the empire at that time where it feels like it's a loss that you can never come back from and then sort of the birth of this even newer and bigger and grander and more powerful empire coming out of that the beginning of the Aeneid really comes from a place of everyone sort of feeling like things are really solidly fucked you know yeah yeah it's like it's it's apocalyptic it's like the destruction of an entire society and way of life and like you know like yeah like Aeneas has no home at the beginning of yeah Aeneid, like it know? feels it really feels like this definitive end of something like like an like an end of the world kind of moment yeah yeah um, yeah and and that then what we know from hindsight is that you know Rome ends up becoming of course a million billion jillion times bigger and more powerful of an empire than 
Troy ever was and ends up, you know, subsuming Greece, essentially, even. (laughs) Um, Right. And most of Europe. (laughs) And yeah, exactly. So, so, um, so with that hindsight of, you know, of knowing that, it frames it really differently than how it feels to Aeneas, you know, sailing away after this 10 year siege war where, you know, his home is burning and everyone on both sides have taken these sort of catastrophic losses. But the hope and optimism is that we sort of know that the ending of that story is that they build a thing that was greater than the thing that they lost. And so I feel like to me that juxtaposition feels really of a piece with the way the writers have been talking about the show about sort of holding on to hope of finding this stubborn innate optimism in these really dire apocalyptic circumstances and it makes me feel like what it's setting up for you know the potential hopeful season five is that season five will be like the founding of rome season you know like if last year was the trojan war and this year is the aeneid the next year is going to be, you know, the Romulus and Remus, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's, it's going to be, you know, how does their new home, how does the new city or the new existence that they build out of whoever is left, you know, like out of the people who survived the apocalyptic disaster that happened, you know, who are those people? What do they build in that wreckage? What does it look like? Um, and, and, and that's a very different kind of world building from what they've been doing, you know, like a sort of the scrappy group of whatever cast members survived the season four finale, which will, I'm sure include like some grounders and some sky crew and some ice nation and whatever building a society together in this sort of like apocalypse ravaged world that they discover when they survive, you know, like after the. I don't know if it's a five-year time jump or if they go into cryo sleep or if they're holed up in a bunker or kind of how that happens. But it feels like it sets up a really interesting season five where we're watching a sort of rebuilding from scratch with this much smaller group of people. And and there's and if and if we're, you know, if we're interpreting all of these sort of classical illusions right, there's something really innately hopeful in that if it's pointing towards a like like that seems to I guess it seems to imply that the thing that they build will last you know like it seems to imply that the end of the story however many more seasons the show goes whenever this series finale is that humanity is going to survive and thrive and be rebuilt and people will be lost along the way and terrible things will happen but that the end like the founding of Rome will be successful. And so that's the kind of stuff I think that can really pull you through these really dark storylines without them seeming nihilistic and soulless and grim. Um, Yeah. It gives the story, it gives a kind of a counterweight of optimism to that where like right now we're in the part where Aeneas is sailing away from his burning city and everyone that he loves is gone. And there's like this scrappy handful of survivors and it's like whoever could, you know, like, Whoever's alive is like whoever can fit on this boat, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, whoever got away. And and yeah. I think yeah, so so I mean I think a couple other things about Vesta that fit with this is that she was a goddess who like you would always pray to Vesta at a marriage but also at a sacrifice, which I think is interesting and sort of like in terms of like she's connected to you know like a marriage which is the beginning of a life or or sort of like the beginning of a home, you know what I mean? And like, and suggest the production of children. Um, But then also at a sacrifice, which is a kind of like a loss of life that is meant to, in the long run, do good, you know? So there's a kind of like destruction tied with, with 
ultimate good there. And then um, this, because when you said Romulus, that reminded me of another thing that I read about Vesta today. And this is this will also this is more fuel for your um, cabbie baby. (laughs) So so in one of Plutarch's books, Plutarch, who is this, uh, you know, famous Roman writer um, in his version of um, Romulus, the Romulus and Remus story. They were born of their their mother was impregnated by um, this like magical phallus that appeared in a flame. And the reason that they were suckled by a wolf is because there's this guy like there's a phantom phallus that appears in his hearth. This oracle tells him that a virgin must have sex, have intercourse with the phallus. Um, so he tells one of his daughters to go do it and she refuses and sends her handmaiden in, instead. Um, and so the, the father gets really mad about that. Um, and he, and he wants to execute her, but Vesta says no. And so the handmaiden gives birth to twins by the phallus in the flame who are Romulus and Remus. And then the king takes them, he, he you know, like sends them into the wilderness and they're suckled by the wolf and they become Romulus and Remus who, who go on to help found Rome. So, so Vesta is tied to the foundation of like all these foundation myths of Rome and, and in particular tied to, you know, making the baby, the babies that found and, well, this and, new... and the, and the other thing I think that's an important factor here is that there were siblings Yes. And, and and so that makes me feel so again, maybe more <laughs> So tin, so Clark having maybe a sibling. More, well yeah, maybe more tin head baby theory. Or or also potentially, um <laughs> is it something where is is it a is it a symbol that Bellamy and Octavia are themselves Ooh, yeah. going to play some really significant role as as siblings who also are sort of hardwired into kind of a classical mythology sort of backstory. I wonder about the fact that, you know, if we're getting little bits of Romulus and Remus stuff is the fact that we have we have what we've what in this entire world we have one extant pair of siblings. You yeah. Know, and, yeah, that does seem like really really important. Yeah. Yeah, and, so what does it mean for them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially since the the for the emperor who's this, who built the Vesta, you know, who built the first Vesta um, temple in the Palatine was Augustus. Was and Augustus. we all know that that right. Octavia, you know, is named after Augustus's sister. Right. So that does seem like you know that 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 potentially could be pointing to the Blake siblings as being yeah. like the sort of core key foundational pair. Anytime we get a classical mythology reference on this show. I look for how does this connect to Bellamy or Octavia? You know, so the yeah. fact that the fact that Gaia and Octavia have the sort of little connective moment that they have feels right and makes sense. I think the ship being named Vesta and all of this sort of Aeneid stuff, I think it just it's interesting because neither Bellamy nor Octavia are anywhere near this storyline yet, but that makes me feel pretty confident that at some point soon they will be. And because yeah. I can't quite figure out how that's going to work, I'm really excited. <laughs> yes, 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 I know. I mean, I, like, I started looking up that. I was just like, I wonder about this name yeah. of the ship. And then like, the more I read them, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, yeah. This seems like a really, really key little detail. Yes, this is like, and this is why, like, this is the shit that I love about this show. Like, these are yeah. the kind of, like, Easter eggs that I love digging for and the tiny little connective threads that, you know, you get some, like, 
some sort of obscure classical reference that then turns out to be the key to unpacking some whole storyline later that ties six different threads together. Like this is the stuff that I really love that makes me, you know, forgive the kind of a little bit frustratingly rough storyline in the other half of the story because so much world building and so much potential kind of plot things to unpack happened over in the science lab that makes me like, insanely hyped for how all this is going to play out. Like not just the Raven and Abby and Nightblood stuff, but also the Cadigan, Becca, Vesta, Bellamy and Octavia, who's going into space, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just like, I'm so pumped about it. Yes. The only sort of downer about the like Blake sibling um, and Romulus and Remus uh, parallel is that I believe Romulus killed Remus. Yeah. That's not ideal. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to hope, I mean, like, as with all these things with, like, with illusions, when you're, when you're, like, thinking about, like, literary illusions or what any kind, you know, like, mythological illusions or whatever. I mean, I think, like, it's almost always much more thematic than plot-wise. So I really, really doubt that it's going to, like, follow, like, that means that one Blake sibling is going to kill the other to take power. Like, I kind of, I doubt that it's going to be that direct. Yeah. I think no, it just but was, I, yeah, but so, yeah, but yeah. but I do think that I think that we also do have. I mean, if we're going to be super literal about it, we 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 are in a situation where is that tied into like does that does that come back and echo in some way in the Bellamy and Octavia stuff going forward, where he feels a sense of responsibility for like he felt like he killed Octavia. You know, right, he, right, 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 yeah. He felt some, like, he felt like he, him, in him failing to protect her, you know, in what happened to her with Echo. If there is an, if there's a direct moment in the plot that is allegorical to that, maybe it's that. You know, I don't know. That could um, be. That, that, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. But I, but I also yeah. do just sort of feel like, in general, like, Bellamy Octavia, Augustus Octavia, Romulus Remus, sibling stuff. I'm just like, I'm just looking at it with, I'm just like, this is going to become a thing. Siblings, because because when you when you shine a light on anything related to siblings, you know, and you've created a world where that isn't a thing that exists, it just, you know, makes me, like, like yeah, in a, in a more thematic way, maybe than necessarily, like, a literal way, but it just makes me feel like at some point those two are going to become, you know, really key to the storyline, and because I have zero idea how that will happen, I'm very much, like, this is going to be really interesting, but I don't think I don't think that she's going to like shoot a brother. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. no. I, I don't think so either. I yeah. don't think so either. But the yeah. but the sort of like broad, like sort of big thematic possibilities that that name of that spaceship opens up. I'm just sort of like I'm really excited about. Me too. Yay! Yay. We ended on a happy note. We did. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, next week there is no episode. But, but, but next week's exciting, fun surprise is that we are interviewing Sachin Sahel, who plays uh, Eric Jackson. Um, And so we're going to be talking to him tomorrow. So that interview will go up um, early next week, maybe on show day to tide you all over. So you will get extra bonus meditation content. There just won't be a whole big, long recap. Um, because we now have to wait a whole entire week to find out what is happening to our our homeless band of itinerant sky crew Asgata <laughs> wanderers. <laughs> We're all just going like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> uh, yeah. Rowan is like, we just got here. <laughs> 
Like, the worst version of that, Troy Barnes walking into a, you know, a room on fire with pizza <laughs> gif. That is Roan and Echo. Like, hey guys, we bought you a peace treaty. Oh, fuck. Uh, oh my god, it's so accurate. Um, anyway, time. so we'll see you all back here next week with our such an interview, and then we will be back um the week after that to talk about episode 406 which i don't remember the name of oh we will rise we will rise yes we will rise in two weeks in two weeks bye bye